You're listening to the Oz Movies Podcast, only on the Oz Network. Welcome back, everybody, to the Oz Network as we continue on with our Mission Impossible month slash four, five, six weeks, however long it's going to be. Uh, we are excited to bring you another episode. We started last week with Mission Impossible. This week we move on to Mission Impossible 2, the 2000 film that did wonders for Australia, perhaps. It did wonders for the world of cinema. It did wonders for John Woo. It did wonders for Tom Cruise's hair as shampoo companies all over the world got into a line to make sure it was washed and nice and flowing freely. Uh, it's an interesting one, this one. I don't know how we're going to turn out at the end of this one. I don't even know what my co-host's feelings of this film are. I can't even speak properly. I don't know why. But we're excited to talk about this film. My name is Ben, and my grandma and your grandma were sitting by the fire. My grandma told your grandma, I'm going to set your flag on fire. Talking about, hey now, hey now, Ico Ico one day, Giacomo Fino, ah. no, 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 blah, 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 blah. You know what's so funny is I was singing the lyrics as we were watching the opening credits the other day, and I didn't recognize that until you got that code. My name is Colin, you whacked out Russian gypsy. Racist. Um, What lyrical genius came up with the lyrics? Um, Talking about hey now, hey now, Ico, Ico, Unday. I'm just reading this word for word. Giacomo Fino, I, Nai, Nay, Giacomo Fino, Nay. You and I could be um, lyricists if that's all it takes. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. It's just... <laughs> Mission Impossible 2 is here. Uh, <laughs> 2000, it was, it was big, it was huge, it was different to the first one. Um, I'll start off with your history on this film because yours is going to be longer than mine. I saw this with my dad. We rented it from the video store. We didn't like it. There, that's my history with this film. Uh, well, before I get to my history, I'll just set this up. He said, you're not even sure of my feelings on this movie. All I can tell you is that it's going to get really good next week. No. So <laughs> just <laughs> Thank sit God. Tight. I'm about to give up. Be patient. <laughs> uh, I, I will say that this is one of these things. I mean, it's just like we went through the Jurassic Park movies. I mean, I, I have an appreciation for this, but this is my lost world of the Mission Impossible series. Uh, if I go through the entire five movies in here, this is the only one that I only saw once in the theater. I saw, I was like one and done. I'm like, okay, that's good enough. Uh, a couple of, I think three and four, I saw like three times each. So just to put that in perspective, and it's not that I think there was anything wrong with this movie. It's just, it's just an okay movie. Uh, but there are some things about it, like particularly when you get to the last half hour, if you're looking in terms of just a great action movie, I would put the last half hour, at least the action sequences we see up there with some of the greatest action movies ever made. It's just unfortunate the first hour and a half really has almost nothing to it. And uh, if if it's not that the, you know, there's not a lot of story going on, it's the fact that this is one of these movies that if you take all the slow motion shots out of it, you've got a 47 minute movie here. So... <laughs> We should breeze through this, at least, you know, in terms of talking about the story and everything. But, I mean, I, I I was a huge fan of the first one. It's one of these ones that I remember my brother and I seeing the first one in theaters. And I don't even remember if I told the story about that. But um, when we first saw Mission Impossible 1, I remember mentioning last episode that it took me a while before I saw it. But it was one of these things where uh, we were hot, sweaty, disgusting uh, <laughs> teenagers <laughs> – 
And my mom said, get out of the house for the afternoon. Here's, you know, uh, $20 or whatever. Go to the movies. And we went down and watched Mission Impossible and I think Twister the same day, which were like the two big movies that summer. Uh, and I think on first viewing, we're like, that was a really interesting movie. And then a couple of weeks later, like, let's go see Mission Impossible again because we were still hot, sweaty, disgusting teenagers. <laughs> shower, my yeah. mom didn't want us in the house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We had showered in three weeks. So she's like, let's see Mission Impossible again. But it's one of these things when I saw it like on video, it just it grew on me more and more. So uh, by the time Mission Impossible 2 came out, I mean, I had gone from being like a casual fan uh, to being like a diehard fan over the course of these four years. And I can remember even seeing the uh, the first bits of publicity, like I, the, the trailer. I can still uh, visualize every shot of the trailer in my head, the first teaser trailer, which included like the Hans Zimmer, uh, very, very loud Hans Zimmer <laughs> Mission Impossible theme, which seemed different at the time. And just seeing like the, the shots, like the motorcycle shot and everything. Uh, so when it came time for the movie to come out, I mean, it was their first day. Uh, but it was just sort of like, yeah, that was pretty good. And I remember a lot of people you know, talking about it afterwards. And I don't think there were a lot of people who were like, ah, I didn't like the movie. Most people's opinion, especially in 2000 was it was pretty decent, but you also have to consider like, I guess the popularity of mission impossible sort of came post mission impossible three. It was sort of a combination of after the trilogy was done and Tom Cruise's career was in the dumps, people going back and watching this trilogy and being like, you know, there's a lot of good stuff there. And then when ghost protocol came out, everything exploded. But at the point this one came out, I mean, I saw it opening day. I enjoyed all the action stuff in it. I loved Tandy Newton. Like, I loved, loved, loved Tandy Newton uh, <laughs> at the point when I saw this movie. Uh, I thought Doug Ray Scott was interesting. And I think more than anything, this was the movie that kind of finally convinced the world Tom Cruise could be a real action star, like at levels that nobody else had ever done before. So uh, whenever I go back and watch this movie, I mean, it's, it's always the fond memories of the action more than anything else. I, I will say I agree with you. I think that the action is really good in this film. Um, it just takes like five years to get to because we've got like 20 <laughs> hour shots of Tandy Newton falling off a cliff. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's that, but I mean, this was the film that, you know, stopped me from watching any more Mission Impossible films. I remember when, <laughs> I think I remember when Ghost Protocol came out. I'm like, oh, oh, that's right. The first two weren't very good. Uh, and then another one came out. Oh, oh, no, I didn't like the first two. So I like, I had not seen another Mission Impossible film based purely on the fact that I had just had bad memories of this film. And I can see why I have bad memories of this film. Um, it's, yeah, it's, I, I, I will tell you how I watched this film. It was, uh, you know, to date this, it was a Saturday night. I started watching it and then I think Mallory came home. So, you know, we just hung out and then I think I had to get up early the next morning to watch the World Cup. So I went to bed, got up, watched the World Cup. You messaged me saying, I can't record today. Let's record in a couple of days. So I'm like, oh, oh, I should really watch. No, I probably won't watch the rest. Oh, okay. Maybe I will. So I watched like about another half an hour, which only, you know, moved the plot forward about two minutes, got some breakfast, um, did some other stuff, came back and watched another half hour. Um, by that stage, I think the plane had crashed. Um, and it was a very slow grind to get through this film. Um, but it should be noted though that obviously for Australia, I think that I remember, you know, I was 13 when this film came out, but I do remember a lot of um, buzz around this movie here just because, you know, this was maybe the first major, major blockbuster of this scale to be filmed here uh, and actually use it purely as a location. Like, I uh, correct myself, I think, you know, The Matrix had obviously been filmed in Australia, but I don't think that that was very much mentioned that, hey, we're in Australia. 
uh, you know, a lot of movies had been filmed here and used cities as kind of like, you know, oh, this is New York, this is whatever. But, you know, to me, I'm pretty sure, and somebody listening might be able to correct me, that this was kind of the first major Hollywood blockbuster that actually primarily used Australia as an actual location. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was a big deal. I mean, for Tom Cruise, of course, you know, Tom Cruise at this stage in, in the world, essentially, we kind of claimed him as an honorary Australian. He was married to Nicole Kidman. Um, you know, we, everything, everyone in Australia loved Tom Cruise. So it was kind of, it was a huge thing for us that he came out here, filmed this movie. Um, and, you know, it, it got a lot of buzz, particularly when it was released too. So I think for Australia, you know, whether this film is good or not, I think this did great things for f- films in this country because, you know, we always had a lot of movies in the last, you know, close to 20 years since this film that have, have been filmed and set here and, also, the influx of Australian actors as well. I mean, you know, Hugh Jackman kind of broke out in the year 2000 and kind of, it's, it's just taken for granted now. Oh, another Australian's in a movie. Oh, a movie's filmed or set in Australia. You know, you've got to go back to 2000 when this obviously was kind of a new thing. And I guess for people like yourself who maybe have never seen much of Australia except in Crocodile Dundee or The Crocodile Hunter, I mean, this is kind of, a, it opened your eyes up slightly a little bit to, to this little small neck of the woods. Yeah, and, you know, you mentioned how The Matrix came out, but, I mean, another thing to keep in mind is that The Matrix was, even if it had a decent-sized budget, there was no expectation about that movie. I mean, people who heard about that before it came out probably assumed Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, some (laughs) weird sci-fi movie, this would be, like, straight to video. So, even though, yeah, Australia was the film location of that, I mean, I think they filmed The Matrix there more just because they saved a lot of money. (laughs) And Tom Cruise was like, I want to showcase this as a location in a way that has never been showcased before. And, uh, you know, I remember that, that being such a huge deal, too, because, yeah, you would get the James Bond movies filming in other countries and even Mission Impossible. You know, they, they set it in a few different cities. Um, but this was like, what is it, 75 to 80 percent of the movie all in Australia? Mm-hmm. And it was such a big deal even over here at the time where they're like, you know, this massive blockbuster is choosing a film there. You know, from the point this filmed in 1999, it was released in 2000. I mean, this comes out May of 2000, and a month later, George Lucas is filming the Star Wars prequels there. So I don't know what was going on behind the scenes, you know, even before Tom Cruise got involved in this, where there was this big push. The similar thing happened, you know, here in Canada, obviously, um, but even just in Winnipeg, similar thing happened um, maybe 10, 15 years ago when the the city government just offered these massive tax breaks for foreign movies filming here, which is why we got a whole bunch of movies starting to film in Winnipeg out of nowhere. There must have been something like that going on at the time. I don't I, I'm gathering you don't know much about it, but it's just they're too close together to have like George Lucas say we are filming two Star Wars movies there. They're going to build the state of the art facilities. And then you have the Matrix sequels. You got Mission Impossible. Like these are the three biggest franchises in the world at that point, all at the same time. I think a lot of it came down to the construction of Fox Studios in Sydney, um, which was a groundbreaking, you know, cinema studio at the time. And I think that was always promoted heavily here as kind of why we were able to bring these films, because that's where the Star Wars prequels were filmed. Um, and I believe the Matrix, I think a lot of the Matrix sequels are actually filmed up here where I'm living sort of in the Gold Coast, near actually where I was at the Commonwealth Games, um, where they did Thor Ragnarok and Aquaman and sort of these other movies. But yeah, Fox Studios was brand new at the time. And, um, and also you got to look at kind of the investment that's been put into Sydney at this time in history. Cause the, you know, this came out in May, uh, you know, four months later, the Olympics were on. 
Uh, so, you know, there's a lot going on in Sydney at this time to kind of showcase it to the world. So I think kind of that was just a lot of, you know, clever investment being made into the city, you know, you know not just ahead of the Olympics, but kind of, you know, to the long-term, uh, you know, plans of what the city would do. Because, I mean, again, I was young at this stage, 13. I don't really know Sydney standing on the global scheme of things as a global city, but, you know, now Sydney's regarded as a global city. When people think of Australia, what's the first place you think of? Sydney. So... Um, I think kind of a lot of, you know, it was all building up from this point onwards. But yeah, Fox Studios, I went past it like a year ago. It's kind of in between two sports stadiums and you used to be able to do tours and everything of it now. I don't think you can anymore, but um, it's kind of, I don't think it's as quite high profile as it used to be. I think now they mainly just use it for filming certain TV shows when it comes to like, you know, um, family feud and <laughs> the voice and things <laughs> like that. Um, so I think that's kind of mainly what it's used to because we've got other film studios here now. I know there's a pretty prominent one in Melbourne. Um, you know, films like Ghost Rider and Superman Returns were filmed there. Um, and I think Superman Returns actually was mainly filmed in Sydney, if I correct myself. Uh, but yeah, and obviously, as I said, up here in Queensland. So we've got them now, but I think kind of at the time, Mission Impossible, you know, because it, it does say prominently in the credits, filmed at Fox Studios in Sydney. Mm-hmm. One thing I just was curious about, this was the first note I made in the movie, because I think as the movie opens, it even says Sydney, Australia. <laughs> Is that something that bothers Australians when you identify the country like instead of, you know, like for, for here, if uh, you have an American movie and they're filming or they're showing a scene that's taking place in Montreal or Toronto, we'll say Toronto, Canada. But like in Canada, nobody refers to it as Toronto, Canada. So I don't know if that's something that like bothers Australians too, that it's like Sydney, Australia. I was very confused because like I South thought Wales. it was Sydney, Canada. So I'm glad they put it there. Uh, <laughs> I hear the opera house in Sydney, Canada is also very distinct. Um, I mean, look, it, it's... I don't know if it really something that bothers us. I mean, it's just kind of something that comes with the territory. I mean, no offense to our American friends, but we know that Americans sometimes in their geographies and that smart. So, you know, they might be like, Sydney, where, where's that? Uh, and then all of a sudden they're, oh, Australia. So, you know, it, it, we know it's targeted. We're smart enough to know that that opera house is in our own city. Um, so I, I, I'm just excited for, you know, the next Spider-Man movie where it starts out with the title of New York, America. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, it's one thing I'll say, though, and we'll talk a lot about the filming locations with it in terms of the setting is fairly accurate from what I know of Sydney. I mean, I've been to Sydney plenty of times, but I know we talked a lot about in our in our Lost recaps uh, when they obviously do Sydney stuff. And we know that they filmed that in Hawaii. They don't actually film it in Sydney. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of, um, you know, creative licensing going on for the positioning of the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge. Like, they'll be standing in a park, which in real life is in the middle of the water. Um, yet there's the Opera House and there's the Harbour Bridge just right next door. I th- they did one in Niagara Falls where um, I think it was Rose and Bernard are having dinner and literally they would have been in the middle of the frickin' waterfall uh, the way they position this restaurant. Um, so, you know, creative licensing. But for the most part, like, the, the final scene when they're in that park, like, that is the Sydney Botanic Gardens. That is legitimately how it is. Um, so, you know, there's there's little things like that. Just quickly on John Woo, though, uh, we actually have recapped his uh, previous film before this. Uh, he did a TV um, bit in between Face Off and Mission Impossible 2. But it's kind of... 
it's weird to think that we were so positive on Face Off, which is, you know, if, again, you read the synopsis of that film on paper, it's dumb, but it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Mission Impossible 2 is maybe a bit more grounded in reality. But to me, I don't know, like, I just... We'll talk about why I think a lot of the John Woo-ness of this film kind of takes away from it. Yet we liked it in his previous film. What happened in three years here? Yeah, you know, it's... it's I, I mentioned on the Face Off episode last year, too, that, like, I, I'm a diehard John Woo fan from even before he started making the American movies, even, like, his Hong Kong movies, like Hard Boiled and The Killer. Like, those two movies I put up there among, like, my favorite movies of all time. Um, in some ways, this is the most John Woo movie John Woo has ever made. Like, it has everything that you expect from a John Woo movie except for a plot. And I think that's the biggest exception here. I think one of the other problems is that the action here is used sparingly. And one of the criticisms this movie came out at the time was that the movie was way too heavy on the action. It didn't feel like Mission Impossible because Mission Impossible is not supposed to be a big blow-up action. There's really, like you said, not that much action in this movie. There's a couple of sequences, uh, but it's mostly all at the end of the movie. Now, once it gets to it at the end of the movie, it's really into it, which is why I think it works when John Woo can just do the action. That's not to say John Woo's bad with plots. I mean, Face Off shows he can handle a completely absurd plot. It's the fact that this movie doesn't have much of a plot. And maybe one of the other things is that I think that John Woo's really good, especially in Face Off, you know, when he has really, really exciting characters of the actors that he has can play exciting characters. And Especially in this movie, I mean, Ethan Hunt's kind of bland. You know, he's great to watch in the stunt scenes, but one of the main criticisms I'm going to have when we get closer to the end of this is just how much this movie relies on Tom Cruise and nobody else, like to points where it almost becomes nauseating at the end. And I'm like as big of a Tom Cruise fan you'll ever find. But this is almost like Tom Cruise overload as far as just how much they rely on him in the story. So there's just a lot of things I don't think John Woo had the ability to do compared to what he had in Face Off. I think primarily it's just not a lot of life in the characters of the story. And I just want to start out this recap by also saying, I'm a fan of Tandy Newton, all right? I love mm-hmm. Tandy Newton. I'm, that's maybe the kindest I'll be to her in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> the character gives me the shits. <laughs> so- yeah, there's some good moments, but there's some bad moments in there, Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a, that's a summary of it. Uh, anyway, so we start off, uh, Sydney in Canada. Uh, where is, isn't that in like <laughs> New Brunswick or something, isn't it? Or, um, somewhere out the East Coast? Somewhere around there. Yeah, somewhere yeah. out there. Um, Nova Scotia. No, <laughs> Nova Scotia, eh? Um, often <laughs> the accents get confused between Sydney, uh, Australia and, um, and Nova Scotia. But, uh, we meet, um, now I keep, I wrote down that this guy's name is Dimitri, but he's talking to Dimitri, right? So this yeah. is, uh, Dr. something else. Um, Dr. Nekrovich. Nek- <laughs> there we go. Um, I, I can say big words. You know who this guy reminds me of? And I actually just looked it up to see if it was him, but it's not. Uh, I don't know when the last time you saw uh, Men in Black was, but you know how in the first one you've got the guy with the cat that's got the galaxy around the the, yeah. the thing? He looks like him. It's not him, though. Mm-hmm. Um, generic German-looking villain one. Uh, <laughs> although he's not really a villain, is he? Um, we're at Biosite Pharmaceuticals. Now, that is a real building in Sydney. Don't ask me what building that is. I know every time I go to Sydney, I like to point out the glass building where the helicopter flies into in the Matrix, because I always know where that building is. Uh, but that one, I've seen it. 
I don't know what the fuck that building is. So um, it's probably Telstra or something like that, one of our telecommunication companies. <laughs> um, but uh, we're in a lab and we see, I'm just going to call him Dimitri. He's not Dimitri, but <laughs> he injects himself uh, with a, uh, I guess, a virus, a gun. We don't know the name of it yet, do we? Um Essentially, this leads him to uh, getting on a plane. We find out that he's got 20 hours to get to Atlanta um, with this virus. I, I do like the... There's a bit where he walks out of the building and we've got those kids doing the pocket full of posies, the tisket, because that was written, wasn't it, for the actual plague? So that was... I don't know if you knew that. Like, that song was back in the dark ages when the plague happened, and that when they're talking about children falling over, they all fall down. That was because all the kids were dying. So it's one of those uh, nursery rhymes, if you actually learn the meaning behind it. It's quite sad. Uh, <laughs> so I kind of like the subtle little reference there to, obviously, a, a killer disease. Uh, and he's on this plane. I, I think it is around about 20 hours to get to Atlanta from Sydney with a stop. So he's he's really pushing it. Like, they couldn't meet in Los Angeles or something like that. <laughs> like, you know, a little bit, little bit closer. Um, and he's on the plane. He's chilling with, well, sort of Tom Cruise. I don't want to talk about Tom Cruise's hair just yet because this isn't Tom Cruise. Um, <laughs> and we all of a sudden get basically these men take down Dimitri. They jump out of the plane. The plane crashes. <laughs> all the people on the plane get gassed. We realize this isn't Tom Cruise. Uh, it's, um, well, I've forgotten his name, Ambrose. Oh, Grace Scott. Yep. Um, a forgettable villain, so I forget his name. Um, and they jump out of the plane, and the plane blows up. Um, now, I, again, I've watched this movie like four days ago, right? I'm reading my notes, so I'm probably just going to assume right now that I don't think we get the full extent of the, uh, the virus. Again, I took me 13 years to remember I'd watched this film. Actually, 13 years. It's been like 18 years, Ben, I can count. Um, it's been four days, so I'm going to be struggling already here. Um, but I mean, this whole scene is entertaining. It's, you know, we've got people jumping out of a commercial jet, basically, uh, flying into the Rocky Mountains. The poor pilot wakes up just as he realizes he's about to blow up. Um, I don't get why, like, this guy's injected himself with the virus, because essentially... The whole plot of this film, it's its more understandable than Mission Impossible 1. So bear with me here, Colin. I think I understand this film. So <laughs> he basically has a virus. They want to create a virus so they can create an uh, antidote because they will make the money off the antidote. So he's basically bringing this virus back to America to show off to the people, hey, we've created the antidote. Now, why, again, does he need to inject himself with this? Is there a reason? Why is it to get through customs, basically? And if that's the case, why do they need to kill him? Shouldn't they just keep him and torture him a little bit more? I don't know. I, am I just being dumb already in this movie? I mean, they kind of allude to the fact that uh, I think he says the only way to, well, Ethan says later on, the only way to safely smuggle the virus was in his bloodstream. Um, the idea being that this doctor, uh, Dimitri, uh, otherwise <laughs> pronounced as Nikorovich, uh, <laughs> Nikorovich, knows what they're doing is wrong but he knows that if he smuggles this thing all it takes is him dropping his bag and the virus is out and everybody in you know whatever country he lands at everybody in atlanta is dead so the idea is if he puts in his bloodstream he could safely transport it because it's obviously not an issue about customs because he's carrying the bellerophon mm. um cure on him at the time see i pay attention to this film <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and so Dimitri is friends with Ethan, and we meet Ambrose here. Who uh, the one thing I say that I the re- I think the real reason why I don't particularly you know move towards Ambrose as a likable villain is that. I feel there should be more explored into him being a rogue IMF agent. It's kind of... Oh, yeah. You know, what happens... What works well in Goldeneye, for example, is, you know, we know the background between Trevelyan and James Bond, so that is more effective. Uh, And that's what makes Trevelyan such a great villain when he kind of goes through with his plan. I feel like there's nothing here. Like, I almost want to say there's no chemistry between Tom Cruise... Uh, and Doug Gray Scott, because like you, you want them to be against each other, you want them to be cat and mouse, and even throughout this film, when we kind of get like Ambrose going, oh, I know exactly what he's going to do. I mean, there's a whole lot of plot holes around that scene, but I just, I just feel like we needed to have some sort of like five years earlier scene or something. Like, why is this guy rogue? Do we ever learn this? Why he is? No, it's. Like, that's, I think, one of the big complaints about the movie, because I actually do like Ambrose in this movie, but I completely agree with you, especially watching it this time and taking all the notes. It really just struck me how little they explore with this and how much they could have done. It it wouldn't have taken that much. He has a ton of screen time in the movie, but it's all him being this evil villain. You know, this fits if you're, you know, Orc Goldfinger, but it (laughs) doesn't fit if you're Alec Trevelyan. You know, you need a reason why, or at least to, even even if they just talk about, you know, Kind of like with the mole in the first one, you know, you have that very quick speech with uh, Phelps basically explaining, you know, the president of the United States is running the country without your permission and all that. We don't get any of that with him here. We also don't get a lot of IMF even being surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Just sort of like, oh, OK, Ambrose did this. And he even says, Ethan, you're not surprised. No. <laughs> I always knew there was something wrong with him. You know, all those times <laughs> we would be like in, you know, learning about the villain. He'd be taking more notes about the villain than the mission. It's like, yeah. oh, how do you think I contact that guy? What are you talking about, Ambrose? We've got to stop him. <laughs> oh, I mean, yes. How do we stop him? Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, look, I think Doug Gray Scott is fine in this movie. I, it's nothing against kind of the actor or kind of just how he does it. I just feel like we need more of a background and like straight away, like take out that whole plot completely. Don't even say he's a former IMF agent. Just say he's a crazy drug dealer or something, you know, like it doesn't change anything except we're not asking these questions, basically. Um, we, we get now Tom Cruise climbing rocks, uh, <laughs> because why not? And he's listening to Ico Ico. If anybody, uh, who was wondering where my introduction came from going, Ben's lost it. Uh, <laughs> why wouldn't Tom Cruise be climbing a cliff? Uh, listening to Ico Ico. Now, this is what, in Utah, I think it is. And he basically climbs to the top of the cliff. He does a couple of fancy jumps, nearly falls off, only to get to the top of the cliff for a helicopter to shoot a canister in the ground. It's a pair of sunglasses, and here's uh, your mission, should you choose to accept it. And we learn all about... uh, We learn about Ambrose and kind of what's happening, and that he can recruit... Uh, two, any two team members he wants, but he has to choose Naya, Nordoff, ha- is it Hall or Hale Hall, uh, basically to come along with this mission. Uh, and then he's got to go to Seville. And, um, you know, th- we hear this voice and they basically go off and say, you, next time you go on holiday, tell us where you're going. To which Tom Cruise is all like, then it won't be a vacation. And then the sunglasses blow up. Now, Okay, it's cool. It looks awesome. This was in the trailer. I remember this, the sunglasses being flung and, you know, the dun, 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 dun. Like, it's action movie. It's great. But can we just analyse the logistics of this? Like, he's climbing a rock in the middle of the desert 
to simply get a helicopter to shoot a canister in the ground for him to get a pair of sunglasses and blow up. Like, can't that helicopter land? And Anthony Hopkins get out and be like, Hello, Ethan. I'm here to tell you your new mission. Like, they seem to be wasted. How much money does IMF have if they can just go through blowing up random bits every now and then? And again, your mission, should you... Oh, no, I don't want to do this one. Boom, throw it away. <laughs> like, <laughs> It just seems, and also I, we, I don't think we mentioned it much in the first one, but I do love that line where they're like, "And remember, if you die, we will, you know, cover up all existence of you." So it's kind of. Mm-hmm. Does he text his mum? Oh, mum, sorry about like four years ago when you got arrested for that shit. But like, hey, if I'm dead, I won't be existing, and you won't hear about it. So just lol, might be dead. Love, Ethan. Um, <laughs> again, the scene is cool. It looks awesome, but logistically, this is just dumb. Um, oh, the only thing you have to keep in mind here is that, you know, this plane crash and everything happened literally spur of the moment, and they know we have to find out what's going on with this as soon as possible. They had tried to find Ethan, so they've already obviously already been looking for him. They had to send Ambrose in the place as soon as the plane goes down. They're like, oh, we got to scramble, and it's literally, let's find him as quickly as we can. You know, when they had time to put put it together on the sunglasses and everything, and <laughs> Yeah, maybe they could have landed and everything, but I mean, we wouldn't have gotten in Mission Impossible. You have to get that moment where they they f- get the message in some clever way, and in in the context of the story, he's on vacation. You have to explain why they couldn't find him earlier. Therefore, they're going to have to just sort of spring it on him. It can't be he gets to the top of the mountain and they've you know laid a pair of sunglasses out for him with a note pointing to it saying "Put me on." Uh, <laughs> that would defeat the purpose of this being kind of urgent for them. Um, but I mean, okay, first I'm just going to say with the, the plane stuff, this is something that would perfectly fit in a James Bond movie. Like if I was watching GoldenEye right now, and this was the opening sequence, it would feel like it fit. And there are going to be points where I'm going to defend this really fitting with it. A lot of people just think the Mission Impossible 2 has nothing to do with the TV series. Like it doesn't even resemble the franchise at all, but there's a lot of moments where I think it really does. This isn't one of them. Like, I don't think you start a Mission Impossible movie off with such an over-the-top action sequence. And and Ambrose, for you know a special agent or a secret agent, an MI6 agent, an impossible mission agent, <laughs> uh, he's really dumb because he goes on here like he's just been told, hey, you know, this guy's going to bring us this virus or whatever, and he kills me, takes the only thing that he has – he kills everybody on the plane. Like he doesn't have a need to kill any of them. Like he could have just waited until they landed and grabbed this guy. Now he's created a scene where it's so obvious what he's done. Maybe his plan was the plane goes down and they think I go down with it. You know, not likely. Um, but like for something that's happened so quickly, because Nikorovich basically sent Ethan a message and said, I have 20 hours. So then we have what Anthony Hopkins, like, Oh, we can't find Ethan. They've got to be spending a few hours trying to find Ethan. Then they go to Ambrose, like, hey, we're going to send you in this place. Ambrose then has time to kill the pilot on the flight, <laughs> assemble his entire team together, get them all on the very same plane from Sydney to Atlanta all over the course of 20 hours. 20 hours from when he left, they would have had to have met him at the airport. <laughs> so plot hole there. But even just when the, the pilot – like, the pilot's awake with seconds to spare. Like, could they not have given him a heavier dose or something? Or, like, if he's if he's not – gonna have issues with killing people why doesn't he just shoot the pilot in the head right there yeah because this entire thing is blown if this pilot just pulls up the joystick a little bit i don't know if it's called a joystick probably not but he pulls it up like (laughs) one second earlier 
you know, flight simulator or something like that. It, it's just the entire plan's out the window. But it's, they even bring this up later on, where it's like Ambrose, you were so anxious, you know, to to get your gun off, you didn't even realize you weren't even carrying the 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 virus after you left this airplane. So it, this entire movie just makes Ambrose look really stupid. But I do like just that over the top Bond villain side they have. It's something that we don't get in any other of the Mission Impossible movies. The only other time we get a villain that they really go over the top with is in the fifth one. And it's kind of like a really weird, quirky, quiet performance. So it's not quite like this. Uh, it's definitely a performance that doesn't age well because this feels very 2000s. You know, this, this criminal mastermind trying to take over the world. Uh, but one thing that I just thought we should mention here, I don't know if you were even familiar with this, but Doug Ray Scott was hired to play Wolverine in the X-Men movie, which was supposed mm. to come out the same summer. Mm-hmm. And it was because this movie's shooting went so long that they eventually said, listen, we can't delay X-Men anymore because um, Fox had actually pushed the release date of X-Men up by six months. So like, okay, well, we got to replace this guy spur of the moment. Doug Ray Scott had to give up the X-Men role. And that's when they brought in Hugh Jackman, you know, kind of at the last minute. So it's really funny to think that we what would have become of Doug Ray Scott if he had done this and X-Men at the same time? Because you look at his career post-Mission Impossible, and I like him in this movie. And I've always sort of had the opinion, it's like, oh, well, you know, this role was well-received. You know, people didn't dislike him in it. He must have gone to a good career. He has done literally nothing. He was his Desperate Housewives, out. Colin Hilding. He was good in that. I remember him in that. He was in Death Race 3, Inferno. <laughs> he did an episode of Doctor Who. Um, yeah, literally nothing. He was in Perfect Creature. Kind of... I will not hear a bad word about that film that I haven't seen. <laughs> but it's just sort of sad because you look at anybody who comes out of a big movie like this, especially playing a prominent role that was well-received at the time, and he's also coming off of the movie Ever After, which is one of Jamie's favorites, uh, where he played Prince Charming. I mean, a whole lot of attention for that movie. And his career just shirtless, died. I was just, I, I don't, I'm sure he was. Jamie loved it. <laughs> but it's just sort of sad what happened to his career. But I, I like the plane sequence. I think it's just, it, it makes him look stupid. The Dimitri thing's going to come up later on. I'll, you, you'll recognize it once we get to it in one of the future movies. Because uh, I think one of the ideas Tom Cruise always had was he wanted all these sequels to feel like their own movie where he didn't have to see the others. They do away with that slowly. And in one of the future movies, the code name Dimitri is going to come back, and you're going to realize this is one like he he's on the knock list as Dimitri, as we're going to find out later on. Um, the mountain climbing scene. I mean, I don't care if it makes any sense or not. It looks spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the song, yeah, the lyrics are ridiculous. But I got to be honest, I listen to the song all the time. Still, I mean, I oh, still have it on do. my list. <laughs> <laughs> I love the Mission Impossible soundtracks. Uh, Mission Impossible Two. Probably had the best soundtrack. Definitely not the best score because, like, Han, this this score is so Hans Zimmer, and not even in a good way. Uh, <laughs> but like the soundtrack, like with Metallica, Limp Bizkit, the song. Like, I think there's some really good songs on here. This is fun. This was like the first behind the scenes footage they released, and I remember seeing the behind the scenes shot of when he jumps from one cliff to the other, and there's like the cables there holding him. But they were filming this. It's not like there's CGI underneath him I mean, he was up that high on this and tom cruise did all the climbing stunts and that was kind of where him as the action star kind of started because he's producing this movie as well and i don't think there were a lot of actors who produced back in these days so he was kind of the first 
guy who could go out there and say, I'm going to do all my own stunts outside of like somebody like Jackie Chan. And that's, I think, why we can get the Tom Cruise we have today. There's a lot of other guys who might do this stuff, but they're not at liberty to. And like this climbing sequence is the perfect example of why Tom Cruise is incredible because he's not afraid to go out there and do these things. Uh, He comes up with these spectacular things and you're looking at somebody literally climbing a cliff. And there's like one bad CGI shot of the airplane in this movie. And the rest of what you're seeing is all practical stunts, which I think is something that we lose even a little bit in some of the the future ones. Uh, I just love that we're seeing real stunts here. It's spectacular. Uh, And then, of course, the the opening credits, which are very brief in this because most of them just play over top of the mountain climbing scene. But it's the same thing. You get all these little shots of like the the Greek pictures of like Bellerophon and chimera and everything it's it's very cheesy it's very 2000 but it's also very much in, in the spirit of i mentioned the first one kind of like tv show opening credits which is cool i think uh and john woo i mean you know these action scenes this is where john woo can shine it's just maybe it doesn't feel like a mission impossible movie but it still feels like a john woo movie at the early parts i think i was reading he like the producers and everything didn't want him to do any of these because they were like no it's gonna cost us so much money if you die uh, but well, he, he, wasn't. he he wasn't, or? No, Tom Cruise was the producer on this movie. Oh, right. Okay, so he basically I mean, spoke studio, to himself. Probably, yeah. <laughs> the studio, probably, yeah. The studio. Tom Cruise like, don't do it, Tom, you'll die. No, no, I'm a man. Standing in front of Nicole Kidman. Look at me, Nicole, I'm a producer and an actor. I'm having a fight with myself. <laughs> I'm such a good actor. I was robbed for an Academy Award for Jerry Maguire. Um, he was. <laughs> but um, one thing, I, a couple of things you just mentioned I forgot. Uh, we should uh, say that our very good friend uh, from the Oz Network, William Maypother, a.k.a. Tom Cruise's yeah. cousin uh, makes his first appearance as Wallace. He's, he says like three words in this whole movie, doesn't he? Um, <laughs> and we get Richard Roxburgh for the first time. Do we not hear? Uh, is he not the pilot? Or yeah, well, he's the the guy posing as the pilot. Yes, yeah. thank you. Yes, who um, you know? I think like as I mentioned, he's he's gone on. He's more I think renowned here in Australia for kind of a lot of his television work and some Australian films. But uh, you know, a lot of uh, people uh, know him from um, uh, um, Why Have I Gone Blank on the name of the TV show. Um, Rake, thank you very much, Ben. Uh, there's a very popular show here, which I think they did do an American version, but I don't think it did very well. Um, but it's kind of, it's it's not like a, a primetime, you know, major network show. It's kind of on one of our smaller networks, but it's insanely popular. He wins lots of awards for it. And funnily enough, I actually, uh, one of my friends on Facebook posted a picture this week saying like, look who I met today. I met Rake. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's very popular and very critically you deserve, but he, you know, he was in Hacksaw Ridge. He was, you know, in a lot of Australian productions, Moulin Rouge. He actually, uh, very good one that I know him from. They did a mini series on Australian prime minister, Bob Hawke, and he played Bob Hawke. Um, and he was brilliant. He just, you know, Bob Hawke was sort of an older gentleman, larrikin guy, and he just absolutely merged into the role. So good. Um, so he's, he's kind of, you know, not like a, a Hugh Jack and Chris Hemsworth household name when it comes to Australian actors, but I think he's more of a, a critical darling when it comes to kind of, you know, his acting ability. So if you go to any Australian and say, oh, Richard, oh yeah, Richard Roxburgh, he's rake. Um, but, <laughs> Here he is in Mission Impossible 2. I, I like him. I mean, I'm sure you've seen him in other things as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, like I said, Moulin Rouge, I think everybody, you know, because that, that was probably one of the bigger roles that he had. He, he, I think he was the villain in that one, too. Uh, and it's then been a the long other time one was, since I've seen Moulin Rouge. 
Yeah, and uh, I remember him doing the, um, uh, speaking of Hugh Jackman, what was that terrible Hugh Jackman, Van Helsing movie? <laughs> uh, I can't remember if he played like Dr. Jekyll or Dracula, but he played one of the, the characters in that. Yeah, uh, Dracula, I'm looking here on his filmography. Mm-hmm. So You know, you know, we, we really have to kind of um, basically think that Doug Ray Scott would have had Hugh Jackman's filmography and Hugh Jackman would have had Doug Ray Scott's filmography. So we would have, we missed out on seeing Richard Roxburgh and Doug Ray Scott again in Van Helsing. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Hugh Jackman later on, of course, would, uh, appear in Desperate Housewives for 18 episodes while, uh, Doug Ray Scott <laughs> would go on to be in Australia, uh, opposite, uh, <laughs> Tom Cruise's ex-wife, Nicole Kidman. Uh, and who could forget Doug Ray Scott's great turn in Les Miserables, where he was nominated for an Academy Award. Thoroughly deserving, believe, too, don't you think? I believe he went up against uh, Hugh Jackman for Death Race 3, Inferno, in the same <laughs> yes. year of the Academy Awards. <laughs> and oh, wasn't he ripped off at Death Race 3? Like, I mean, come on. How that didn't win an Oscar. Um, and can we just mention Tom Cruise's long, glowing locks in this film? Uh, <laughs> like... This was uh, a Tom Cruise thing. Like, I remember at the time, I, I it's not that I was so fascinated, but I did this, but it was just sort of one of these things where you, you look back and you realize that Tom Cruise might have been the only actor that literally changed his look in every single movie he was in, all just by changing his hair. I mean, even in every single Mission Impossible movie, you look at the posters, he never has the same haircut in one or another, but like, this was, I think this was coming off of Magnolia 2, where he had, it was much straighter, but even longer hair than this, so he kind of did Magnolia... And then cut it a little bit for Mission Impossible, but he he was always changing the look. And it was two thousand. That was a huge deal. Like every single time Tom Cruise had a movie, I was like, take a look at Tom Cruise's new haircut. <laughs> there was we were talking about the plane sequence actually, uh, and I just looked it up quickly because I know the start of Charlie's Angels is kind of like they're on a plane and then it blows up and then someone's wearing a mask and it's kind of very similar. But Charlie's Angels came out uh, six months after this. Um, but meanwhile in Charlie's Angels, it was, uh, LL Cool J who had his, uh, mask ripped off and was revealed to be Drew Barrymore. Uh, often get, uh, <laughs> confused those two. So, ah, uh, <laughs> uh, Charlie's Angels, the first one was good. Uh, anyway, we get, a like, this scene goes on forever. I swear I'm still watching it right now. I still, like, I haven't even got to it. Tom Cruise is in Seville, Spain, not to be confused with Seville, Manitoba. Um, and there's a dance scene, um, Tandy Newton's there, she's looking suspicious, she's dumped Dr. Carter on ER, she's moved on, um, and Tom Cruise is just staring at her, and they've just got this weird glaring at each other, because, you know, when you're Tom Cruise with long hair, everybody just wants a piece of you. Uh, I'm actually just watching it now, there's a bit when he, like, he's walking past some random woman with a drink who just checks him out. Uh, it's just literally like it's a two second scene he walks past this woman and she gives him a look and then she goes back to a drink okay they're fair enough so everyone in this room has sex appeal with tom cruise as you would uh we also get introduced we went through mission impossible one how it was the same with everybody there yes we get about 30 hours of slow motion going on here like jesus christ every time one of these dancers like spins around there's it's got to be done in slow motion although the the reveal of tandy newton's deserves a moment of like yes it's tandy newton and she's can we do a hall of fame 
scene for <laughs> this sequence here. The, the, the most tolerable section of this film <laughs> for yeah. Teddy Newton. Uh, but it's just, it's, it's so weird kind of how like they've got this stare down going on when you've got dancing in the middle. It's almost like it should be an Enrique Iglesias film clip. You could be my hero, baby. (laughs) That's like the only lyric I know from Enrique Iglesias. Um, (laughs) It basically leads to all of a sudden Tanner Newton disappears when a dress gets. Tom Cruise looks so sad. He's like, Where'd she go? Where'd she go? Uh, to which she goes into a bathroom and breaks in to steal a necklace and he gets on top of her. She wants to be on top. All they're in love straight away. Um, and, uh, he, well, we find out that he deliberately sets an alarm off to get her caught. Uh, he apparently has been posing as what the head of security or something like that, uh, essentially to meet her. And for some reason, all these guards don't know who the head of security is. Uh, <laughs> Like, I don't get it when they all draw guns on him. Wait, that's that's our head of security. And it's like, oh, boss, you should have told us this in our morning briefing that we have a new one. <laughs> <laughs> like, why not? Um, so, you know, it's I mean, it's a fun little introduction between these two. Uh, there is a lot of James Bondness in this movie. Um, you know, and obviously we've talked a little bit about how, you know, in some James Bond films, they've also... Uh, you know, not copied, but done some similar things to Mission Impossible. Uh, so, uh, Ethan's trying to talk up to her, wanting to work with her, and she walks off and gets in an Audi, because why not? And then we cut to, uh, Goldeneye. Uh, I mean, sorry, uh, yeah. this car chasing sequence, <laughs> where somehow, uh, Ethan can get, uh, Tandy Newton's phone number on a very weird looking Motorola that looks like it should be in Galaxy Quest or something like that. Uh, <laughs> that's meant to be futuristic in the year 2000. Uh, this pretty cool car chase kind of, in shoes. I mean, it's it's entertaining. I do like uh, Ethan on the phone, waving with his hair blowing in the wind, kind of playful Ethan. Uh, but it all leads into this super dramatic crash off a cliff with so much slow motion going on. I don't know what the hell I'm watching. Um, to which they kiss, and next minute they've had sex. So can we just point out, this is the extent of the love between these two, that they met once in a bar, they had a car race, and then they fuck... And then, like, 20 minutes later, Tom Cruise is like, No, I can never leave her! She's the love of my life! Um, I thought that uh, James Bond fell in love quickly in uh, Casino Royale. I take all of that back after having seen this movie. This is ridiculous! Like, Jesus Christ! Um, I might cap it there just before we get to Anthony Hopkins. Um, but, yeah, I know I've drilled over a lot. Uh, but you can fill in Have the... You- uh, <laughs> Well, okay, maybe I haven't. Um, we're about halfway through this movie now, I think, there's so much slow motion going on. I feel like we should do this episode in Tom Cruise Drives a Car to kind of keep in tune with what John Woo is doing here. Yeah, like, the first movie was Tom Cruise, running, running. Now it's like, running. <laughs> Play Chariots of Fire. Dun, 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 dun. Ico, Ico, Ico. It's a remix. <laughs> Um, I just want to say, yeah, there's an overdose on slow-mo in this, but it's not like the slow-mo looks tacky. I think there's just, it's too much for this type of movie. Well, I mean, yeah, there's a few shots where it does. And maybe that's just the thing. You know, this is sort of a John Woo thing. 
maybe a bit of a, I'm not going to say language barrier, but just cultural barrier that if you watch like his movie, The Killer, that he made maybe 10 years earlier than this, that movie is like, all, I swear it's all in slow motion, but it works so much better there because the movie itself is kind of dark. Um, so having these slow-mo scenes where the, the, the tone of this movie is constantly changing, we have slow-mo romance stuff here with like the dancing and the, the, the eyeing each other up. We have the slow-mo car spinning around, which seems to be like another love scene. Let's make love to each other as our cars spin off a cliff. <laughs> and then you get like the slow-mo action stuff later on. It's just, I don't know. It, I don't think it works because they use slow-mo in every single context imaginable. So it's not like the slow-mo really brings anything to it. But I mean, it looks cool, uh, especially in the, the car chase scene. And I think even in the dancing scene, although it does go on a little bit too long. It's still uh, going on. Colin, I haven't even it gotten, is. like it's literally still happening. <laughs> they have not finished filming that yet. They haven't. <laughs> Tom Cruise is like in it, between this and the new one. He's just kind of like, shit, I've just got to go finish that dance. I've got to stare at Stanley Newton for another four hours. Yeah, and you know that Mission Impossible Fallout, they're going back to Seville. And oh. you know, when they started filming, they saw John Woo, a very aged John Woo, sitting there saying, slower, slower, spin slower, lady. How very Spanish. They just have to have a siesta halfway through a scene. It's like, okay, everybody, <laughs> let's go to sleep. Uh, one thing I do want to say, like, uh, first of all, and the, uh, not that I could ever be accused of being the inappropriate one on the show, but like, like <laughs> she looks amazing in she this does. sequence. Like, I, I'm going to very much try to tone down, you know, my my feelings. That's as not an inappropriate, Colin. Any man, woman, child, and his <laughs> dog and cat can see that she's hot in this scene. God sakes! Like, we, we commented on um, well, Chris Pine a, being hot in Wonder Woman. God, we've got eyes. So, like, you know, it's, as, it's a simple as case I said, here. I'm going to tone it. Tone it, tone it down here. Um, <laughs> you're going a little too far, Colin. Uh, but like, even the bathtub scene, like, they have a certain chemistry when they can have fun together like this. But I was trying to pinpoint where their chemistry stopped in this movie, and then I realized it's when they stop being around each other, which is 15 minutes into this movie. <laughs> like, it's amazing that in this movie, th this is what I'm going to complain about several times throughout, where it almost just becomes the one man show too much. Because Tom Cruise doesn't really interact with anybody in this movie. He's always doing his own thing. They have these great scenes together. Like, the bathtub scene's fantastic. You know, I want that, you know, I'd rather be on top as my ringtone on my phone. Um, <laughs> but th there's, there's like, a, a there's something really fun about the scene and the way they're playing off each other. Um, and even just the way that she peels away. When she peels away in the car and his... You know, Coke gets caught in the door. Like, Tom Cruise literally looks like he has a moment of panic on his face that you never see in any other moment. Like, this man has jumped off the tallest building in the world in Ghost Protocol. You know, he's driven the, the, this car, almost spun it off a cliff. He climbed, you know, this mountain in Utah without a, a harness or anything. His coat gets caught in her car door, and he's like, ah! <laughs> It's Versace! No, not my coat! Yeah. <laughs> he just really freaks out there. It's fun and funny. But I love... The interactions they have together, but then it just stops. And this movie—you said the same thing about Doug Ray Scott here—that they could have explored a lot more with like these two characters together. I would have loved to see more scenes with them together. These are two mm. guys who have apparently been working together several times. That they're colleagues who don't get along. Everybody has that you know person they work with where they just—it's—it's it's like you know uh, like water and fire. I mean, they, I. they do not go together, um, and. We don't see that in this movie, so there's just there's too much of Tom Cruise by himself here, and it's not a vanity thing. But a lot of people are going to accuse Tom Cruise of you know it was a vanity thing here. I mean, 
Tom Cruise works well in these scenes. It's just nobody else works well because they don't have him to play off of. Uh, I do like, though, that the whole idea that you know he lets her steal this and then he tricks her as the alarm's going off. And uh, when that guy storms into the room, they all have the guns drawn and he's like, uh, uh, what's the, the line here? Um, uh, it's, uh, it's Mr. Keys, our, our security engineer. Now apologize. Like he immediately gets like, really upset at his staff. Apologize right now. We went through this in the meeting the other day about how we need to be more nicer to our staff. Yeah. And like, they're responding to the alarm. Should they have simply known, even though they weren't told that Mr. Keys is going to be in there humping a woman in the bathtub and testing our alarm? Like, they have no idea. They storm in there. He's asking them to apologize. Like, this guy deserves to have his necklace stolen. You know, you know in 2018, it's... this scene's different, right? They would have walked in there and go, did she give you consent? Like, hang on a minute. <laughs> it's not just about the necklace. This is an assault in progress, boys. Oh, that necklace is bribery. <laughs> you can't silence me. You can't silence me. Oh, the Oz Network, once again, laughing about sexual assault. Anyway, moving on. Apologize, Ben. <laughs> Draw your gun on me. I, I even like some of the dialogue. This movie does not have great dialogue for the most part, but there are some fun lines here. Like when he's calling her on the phone and she's like, how do you get this number? Even I don't have the number. He goes, you want it? <laughs> <laughs> lines after. Hey, you want your own number? <laughs> um, but like, I don't know. There, there are moments, I guess I could say, even though I think it looks great, the context doesn't work and John Woo has been on every single making of this movie explaining that he wanted that that scene with the car spin to be like a car ballet like the cars were <laughs> dancing <laughs> that is so I love you John Woo but that is so pretentious please don't the cars uh-huh. they ballet with each other oh it's beautiful and doesn't that make them look stupid too like just like with Ambrose looking really stupid when the plane's about to crash it makes them look really stupid. Like, he he has to recruit this woman. So he almost drives her off of a cliff. She's supposed to be this master thief, but she can't get control of her car. She's basically dangling off a cliff. It just I think it just makes them look stupid. Maybe that's just me. Uh, you know, actually, only- now that you mentioned the car ballet thing, I actually knew I recognized one of those cars. Uh, one of those cars was in Black Swan as one of the uh, backup dancers for <laughs> Natalie Portman. So there you go. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... Only thing I wanted to mention here, not even to do with the scenes, is uh, the, the name that they chose for Naya Nordoff Hall, which <laughs> it always sounded weird to me, but you know, years later I read, which now I consider my favorite book I've ever read, Mutiny on the Bounty. Um, and the two authors who wrote Mutiny on the Bounty, these were their names, Charles Nordoff and James Norman Hall. And for whatever reason, they decided to combine the names of the authors of Mutiny on the Bounty to give Naya her character. Like, there's a lot of times where a character is named after somebody is kind of like a tribute to them or, hey, we're going to name it after this character's father or something like that. Why did they choose the authors of Mutiny on the Bounty to name Naya after it? I, I just I never understood that. And I've never been able to find any real explanation unless, you know, the, the screen art was just a huge fan of Mutiny on the Bounty as well. John Woo was reading it at the time. Um, I don't know. No, we must name these people. These people. Uh, what did, did Jamie watch this movie with you? What did she think of? What did she think of shirtless Tom Cruise? I mean, she. The funny thing is, she appreciates Tom Cruise more when he gets older. <laughs> and uh, and I think it was even in uh, we saw Ghost Protocol, 
And she still couldn't have cared less. In fact, there were a few years there where she was basically saying, Tom Cruise is an ugly man. No. And Ghost Protocol comes out in 2011, and she's like, nah, I just don't get the big deal about him. Jack Reacher comes out in 2012, and she is like, <laughs> well... Is, is he butt naked in that movie or something? <laughs> no, not even. He's fully clothed the whole movie, I think. I mean, there's one scene where he's shirtless, but it, it was... Uh, she's basically said, like... It's as soon as the guy hit fifty. That's when you know. Uh, that's when she became a fan of his. She can go back and still appreciate these younger ones, but like she she didn't get a lot of like reactions out of watching either of these first two movies. I think as the movies progress, she's going to get more into Tom Cruise. The, the problem is Tom Cruise doesn't age, so like I don't get like is it just a thing? Yeah. Like it just he hits always oh, fifty now. I can appreciate him. Like I mean, <laughs> he, the guy has not aged since like nineteen eighty three. So I don't get what the difference is. You know, what is funny is that uh, I don't think many people look at uh, William Maypolder and and say, oh, yeah, this guy's obviously Tom Cruise. Now, if you know that they're cousins and you look at them side by side, you're like, oh, I can kind of see a family resemblance. I pointed him out in the opening scene. Like, yeah, you know, this guy's Tom Cruise's cousin. She looks like, oh, yeah, I could totally see the family resemblance. Like, That's the first person I've ever seen who's like... These guys could be brothers. <laughs> she's going to watch Lost, and she's going to see, like, Ethan pop up. I'm like, holy fuck, it's Tom Cruise. And, oh, wait, no, it's Tony's <laughs> They look so similar. <laughs> oh, when he gets 50, he's going to be so hot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she just, she just has a threshold, you know. She's just like, oh, Justin Bieber, he's so ugly. And then, you know, 30 years time, he just, oh, my God, Justin Bieber's so hot. Um, he's got a horseshoe. Somebody isolates that sound clip of me double. saying that. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's going on our best of. It's going on best of. <laughs> Justin Bieber is so hot. Um, also, one thing I think I should point out, and not that I'm a judge of kissing ability, but like Tom Cruise looks really awkward when he makes out with people. I don't know if you. I mean, I'm sure Jamie <laughs> probably pays more attention to that than me, other than you. But like, I'm, I'm watching this scene right now when he's like macking it on with Tandy, and like he just doesn't look like he's comfortable. Like, <laughs> is it a Scientology thing or something like that? Like. <laughs> It's Nicole Kidman on set, like, going, kiss her, kiss her better. And he's like, oh, Nicole, this is awkward. <laughs> well, that's the other thing I wanted to say that was kind of weird because, I mean, before he made this movie, he was just coming off of Eyes Wide Shut, which <laughs> that movie has a reputation of being more erotic than it is. It, it, it's, it's a pretty tame movie in comparison to, like, you know, whatever is out there, like the Fifty Shades movies, I guess, that are out there now. Uh, but, like, in Eyes Wide Shut, him and Nicole Kidman have, like, a very brief sex scene. And it's funny that even if you look over that, him with his own wife, they don't really get intimate on screen very much in that movie. But what's weird is that Tandy Newton was like a friend of Nicole Kidman's for years before this movie came out. Like, how does that conversation happen? It's like, so, you know, that really hot friend of yours, um, I'm thinking about having sex with her in my next movie. And she's like, if you're going to do it, I want to see you looking thoroughly unimpressed by making out with her. But, you know, remember those times you used to kiss me badly? Do it that way. You know? <laughs> I want you to make love to her like we're an eyes wide shut and she's it- your wife. If you enjoy this, I swear to God, if we ever get divorced, I'll marry a country star, and that way he'll be able to write sad songs about this scene. I guarantee it. Uh, If you look believable, I am sticking you with Katie Holmes. I swear to God. (laughs) First, you'll have to do Penelope Cruz for a little bit, but then it'll be Katie Holmes. You will jump on a couch. You will embarrass yourself. You will lose all your reputation. Oh, that's Tom exactly Cruise. how it went down. <laughs> exactly, like Nicole it's Kidman. in the autobiography. People we'll reference it. Who knew Nicole Kidman was so powerful? 
Hashtag, I'm a Nicole Kidman fan. In hashtag, I like Nicole. Do you like Nicole Kidman? No. I mean, <laughs> I shouldn't be so harsh. I think she's had some movies. She kind of peaked maybe just after this movie came out, like The Others uh, and... Um, what was the other one she had come out right around? I mean, there was Moulin Rouge, The Others, maybe something else around that time. The Hours? And, I mean, The Hours, yeah. And it's just been all downhill since then. And I don't know. I mean, I've never seen a human being look less lifelike than she does now, too. Like, this woman, is, she's she's had more surgeries than, uh, I don't know, Keith Urban. Like, they both look like... <laughs> Michael Jackson was the correct answer there, but you went with Keith Urban. Okay. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think, uh, I mean, she was, you know, everybody in this country absolutely loved the shit out of her, particularly at this point, because I think after the divorce, that's when her career all of a sudden was like, hey, she's away from Tom Cruise, so we like her now. Um, But I think Nicole Kidman is just kind of, she's one of those esteemed actors, especially more in Australia, where... Yeah, you're right. She hasn't really done it. It's kind of like Susan Sarandon. Like, name the last good Susan Sarandon film. <laughs> you know, Gina Davis. Like, I've just gone with the Thelma and Louise couple there. But, like, you know, th- these actors and actresses who have such a high regard that they can do shit movies and they kind of get away with it. Like, Robert De Niro hasn't done anything good in 20 years. So, you know, but it's still, it's Robert De Niro. So who's really going to care? So that's, I think, what Nicole Kidman kind of fits in right now. So, But I, I like Nicole Kidman. I like the movie Australia. You don't. So, yeah. okay then. Uh, I don't know what that <laughs> had to do with anything. Um, meanwhile, <laughs> after they have sex, uh, we attend a weekly meeting of the Scientology Church. There's fires burning. <laughs> there's chanting. And how nice of Anthony Hopkins to show up for Tom... This wasn't even in the script. Like, this is just, yeah. <laughs> this is just you know, offset. Like, Tom Cruise has said to John, oh, I'm just going to go to my weekly meeting. It's like, oh, well, we might be able to do something with this. <laughs> He just uh, walks but... in a room and Anthony hops in. Hello, Tom. It's Ethan. <laughs> uh, so how's it going, Tom? I said it's Ethan. Cameras are rolling. It's hello, Ethan. It's good to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> I hate his liver. No, okay. No, we're just... um. Anyway, he's done more movies than that, Ben. He was in Transformers, all right? He went on to... <laughs> There's another actor that's done, like, not much. Yeah. <laughs> What happened to the cast of Mission Impossible 2? <laughs> Anthony Hopkins, the esteemed, you know, Hannibal Lecter, went on to do Transformers. Uh, <laughs> he, he's, is he even credited in this movie, Anthony Hopkins? No, he's, so this is, this is weird, isn't it? Well, interesting story. Anthony Hopkins had, I don't know what movie he did prior to this, but he had retired. He announced he was retiring from acting. And it was like wow. maybe a year later that he was announced as being in Mission Impossible 2. And he kind of said, you know, I just kind of went through a period where I was tired of everything. And I don't think I'm going to retire. I just like to, you know, kind of slow down. But yeah, he's completely uncredited in this movie to the point where this was the first time I think I've ever in 18 years watched this movie without subtitle or with subtitles. And it was only when I watched it that I realized his character has a name. <laughs> I just sort of known him as Anthony Hopkins or the Mission Impossible 2 boss for the last 18 years. But, like, apparently his character has a name completely uncredited in the movie, though. You'd never know. Wow. There you go. Well, anyway, here he is. It's John Voight 2.0, except not evil. Uh, and basically we learn uh, here a little bit more about uh, Tandy Newton and uh, sort of what's been happening uh, with uh, Ambrose that they used to 
outdo each other, I guess, and then <laughs> she left and this is the part of the mission. The reason why we need her is because we need her to go undercover and get back with Ambrose. And now, look, we'll get to this in a minute because you said how dumb Ambrose is. And Ambrose is dumb. Um, particularly that the fact that Richard Roxburgh basically could solve this movie in two seconds and Ambrose goes along with this but anyway so uh, she'll have to go back undercover we also learn uh, that Dimitri from previously was uh, more of a friend of Ethan than we know we get this really weird what's that scene when um, Ethan says like oh Say you're sorry when you're not sorry or something like that. <laughs> say and then, you're, no, apologize. Say you're sorry. And, and then Anthony Hawkins like, why did you say it like that? Um, it's it's weird. Well, <laughs> no, it's one of the things, one of the few things in this movie, kind of like with Mission Impossible 1, that's meant to have you pick up on something on a repeat viewing. Because in the opening scene on the plane, uh, Nikorovich says to Ambrose as Ethan... Think, still thinking is Ethan. He goes, you're sorry. And as we say, you're sorry and I'm sorry. And he kind of like, ha, ha, ha. And you can see Ambrose kind of give him this weird look like, what? The whole idea being that this was sort of like a code that they had between each other. Um, and, you know, Ambrose didn't pick up on it earlier on. Mm. Well, I mean, it's it's not as gleaming and out there as, uh, say, in the world is not enough. There's no point in living if you can't feel alive. When you remember yeah. that line, whereas this one, you're meant to remember, sorry, I'm not sorry. Like, what? No, you're, so- <laughs> you're sorry and I'm sorry, not say you're sorry. <laughs> sorry. 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 <laughs> Daniel Craig could have been Ethan Hunt. Sorry. Sorry. Um, we, yeah, the mission basically, he's got to get the virus back. Um, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm gelling over shit here, Colin. You can fill in the gaps. I don't know. Uh, but we kind of, is it, it's 2018, it's sexist. In 2000, it's not sexist. I'm not commenting. I'm just saying how the world is now. But the line then, when, what does he say? Like, she's a woman. She can always lie and manipulate and whatever it is. To, like, uh, the line is, uh, to go to a bed with a man and lie to him. She's a woman. She's got all the training she needs. Which, <laughs> yeah. by the way, especially around the time of this movie, like, women now are going to be so up in arms. Oh, that's sexist or whatever. When that came out, that line was like, women applauded in the movie theater when that line came out. And <laughs> well, I yes, know we are. Several- yes, we are. Certainly are. Mildred, we are, aren't well, we? Yes, we are. Again, it's something that kind of gets lost in the context because now people are overanalyzing everything. But, like, the intention of that line was basically, like, you know, a woman can convince a man to do whatever she wants as long as she has sex with him, you know, or <laughs> shows him any type of interest. So this was something that I remember several women when this movie came out being like, I love that line. And now it's like, ah, oh, you can't say that. I I can convince anybody to do what they want if I have sex with them, but nobody's ever done what I want. That's why I'm a virgin. So that's <laughs> Please stop. Please stop. I'll do whatever you want. <laughs> Exactly. I just have to take my pants off. Oh my god, what is that? All right, all right, I'll do it. Uh, oh, in twenty thirty six, that'll be sexist, Ben. Uh, the Oz Network doesn't date well, Ben. I listened to your podcast twenty years ago. They won't be able to communicate me. I'll be in jail by then, probably. Um, I do like the um the line though because I'm pretty sure it was in the trailer. It's a very trailer line. When what does uh, Ethan say? Like that's difficult. Well, it's not mission difficult, Mister Hunt. It's mission impossible. Should be walking apart for you. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so cheesy, but I actually do really like it. Um, and then we get a line between uh, what do we know? Ethan and uh, <laughs> I don't even know what's happening in this movie anymore. Ethan and Nia <laughs> talk. 
Uh, he's basically saying that, oh, I'm gonna protect you, and cause I'm so in love with you, we spent that one night together, so, Tom Cruise is the overprotective guy who basically gets with a girl once, and he's just Mr. Clingy at this point, um, but there is some, like, you said about the chemistry, like, they have it, but then it just goes away, this is terrible acting yeah. in this scene, when oh, it's yeah. something like, oh, it'll make me better if you don't want to do this or something like that. It's like, oh, I'm not feeling good. Then feel better! <laughs> like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no wonder he went through Nicole Kim and Penelope Cruz and Katie Holmes in about six years. This is how he treats women. Like, oh, I'm feeling upset. Then feel better! <laughs> well, it's it's really on both sides of them, too, because there's something with her in this scene, too, where... Yeah. It just feels very forced where she's like, uh, uh, or he says, would it make you feel better if uh, I said I didn't want you to do it? Yeah, very much. <laughs> and he's like, then feel better. Okay, I will then. Then do. Okay, I'm already feeling better. All right. Then we're both feeling great. Uh, I'm going to go back to Chicago and go back with Dr. Carter because he doesn't go off at me this much. You know, I think he thinks I'm in Africa right now helping Sudanese children, but I'm not. I'm here. With you, feel better. Much. <laughs> I want to sleep with your hot friend Nicole Kidman. Fine, butter, do it. Yes. <laughs> Meanwhile, Vanessa Redgrave's in the background. Mm. <laughs> now apologize. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to comment on this? Anything more here? Okay, let me move on. <laughs> well, I mean, the Anthony Hopkins scene was great because I think. It would have been great to see this in theater and actually be surprised when you see Anthony Hopkins show up. And they use so much of him in the, the, the not even just the trailer, even just the teaser trailer. There's just a ton of Anthony Hopkins in the promotion for this movie. Uh, and it's kind of like, you know, the Jeff Goldblum thing where it, it was common knowledge when it came out. It's going to be a very small role. It's basically going to be a cameo. Uh, but I, I don't know. It would have been great to not know Anthony Hopkins in the movie. And then all of a sudden he shows up. Uh, but he actually, it's funny because I always try to think about, oh, what's the best? Because Mission Impossible, they have consistencies. Who's the best boss that Tom Cruise had? You know, we've got, uh, the first one, um, uh, uh, actor Henry Cherney in the first one. We have, uh, Anthony Hopkins in this one. Uh, the third one, we got Billy Crudup slash Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, fourth one, we got Tom Wilkinson. Fifth one, you kind of get Alec Baldwin. And I don't know, I always love Anthony Hopkins, but like he really is in so little of this movie. It just shows like the power of Anthony Hopkins. He's not even really performing anything, but uh, you want to talk about chemistry. Like I think him and Tom Cruise have some of the best chemistry in this movie, <laughs> and they have like maybe three minutes of screen time. Uh, and then the scene. It should have, yes. <laughs> would it make you, Mr. Hunt, would it make you feel better if I said I didn't want you to do it? Yes, <laughs> then feel better. <laughs> he would have won an Oscar for that. Like, didn't he win it? Wasn't yeah. Silence of the Lands is in it for, like, ten minutes or something like that? Yeah. Like, feeling Best better, actor. Mr. Hunt. Oh, Steve the Academy Chris. Award goes to... <laughs> and Tom Cruise is like, Oh, come on, what do I have to do? <laughs> I, I do like, though, the back-and-forth lines they have, like, uh, you know, next time I'll let you know where I'm going on vacation. It's, don't, it wouldn't be a vacation if you did. I like the, that line and how it comes back later yeah. on. Uh, there's another really awkward part with Tandy Newton here where... <sighs> Things that she's not good at in this movie is being upset. Now, she's really great at, you know, walking and wearing the dress and flirting. <laughs> at walking. <laughs> the Academy Award for Best Walker goes to Tandy Newton in Mission oh, Impossible 2. Like, good slow motion walk. I think she's good, like, when she sacrifices herself later on. 
Um, showing like angry emotion, definitely not her. And the funny thing is she's coming off of uh, a movie called Beloved from a few years earlier, which is really where she got her first big break. And I don't think she got an Oscar nomination for it, but she got like several, you know, uh, major like award nominations for Beloved. And she gave a great performance in that. I mean, she is a good actress, but I don't know why she can't do that. It's not even just the the, 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 the feel better line um, when she's like, are you going to try to force me to do this? And he ha- kind of has the good rebuttal where he's like, you know, I don't generally like to force people to do stuff if uh, my life could end up in their hands. And then there's the other line coming up later on. I'll just mention it now when she's like, what are you going to do, spank me? <laughs> and it's like it, it could be played in a flirty way, but, but here it's just sort of – awkward the way it is like this this weird line with uh are you gonna force me to do it like she could have done it like are you gonna force me to do it like mm, are you gonna force me <laughs> but instead it's just sort of like it, it's like a little kid crossing their arms and stomping their feet you're gonna force me to do this mm. <laughs> like just throwing a temper tantrum i just i yeah i'll agree with that. i really don't like her in this scene here uh, not much else to add, uh, other than the fact that this is going to be, with the exception of one or two brief scenes, this is going to be the last time they're really on screen together until they get lost <laughs> into the movie. Um, I'm just looking through her filmography. I, I thought she was in ER earlier than she was. She actually didn't start going in ER to about 2003 here, but, um, I know that there was a, we were talking before about Rake, a popular Australian show which they made in America. I know they then, we had a very popular show here called The Slap, which they then made into an American version. She was in The Slap, according to this. I didn't realize that. Um, And, yeah, I I always talk about how good the movie W is. She was Condoleezza Rice in that. Watch it. It's a good movie, all right? Josh Brolin is George W. Bush. It's great. Uh, But she was also in Norbit. So, I mean, for for every um, W and The Slap and Solo and Crash she's in, she was in Norbit, uh, the movie that cost Eddie, Eddie Murphy uh, an Academy Award. So, um, yeah, anyway. And The Pursuit of Happiness. I forgot she was in that movie. I like that movie. Good film. I cried. Anyway. Um, <laughs> we, we should also learn that um, she... So, if, to get her back with Ambrose, they're going to put her in a jail because they know that Ambrose is monitoring the news and will break her out. And they're also going to put a tracker chip in her that is completely impossible to trace unless you've got one computer. Okay, if this exists in movie lore, why isn't this in more movies? Um, that's my question. How? Why? I want to see them break her out of jail. Like, how do they break her out of this Spanish jail? Like, it just kind of, you know... Well, they gets... don't, I, I think it's implied they, they bail her because... When Ethan and her going over the plan, or when she's going over the plan, which I like that she comes up with the plan here. She's like, you know, he's not going to believe it if he, you know, she said he would have to rescue me or whatever. Uh, they talk about him having the funds uh, or the means to be able to to help her. It's not just being able to help her. He kind of has the funds and means to. So I think the idea is that he sort of bails her out. It's like she's kind of being torn over by two obsessive boyfriends, isn't she? Like, I mean, he's yeah. just monitoring traffic all the time. Where is she? Where is she? She's in Spanish jail. Let's break her out. <laughs> like, she left him. Why, Jesus? How good is she in bed? Uh, that's all I can say. Um, <laughs> now, that was an inappropriate comment. That's number two for the episode. <laughs> 
previously I said something bad about Spanish, now it's about women and sex. So, okay, fair enough. Um, <laughs> we're, we're on track for the usual five, Ben. Um, but I do kind of like these scenes, though. Like, this is going back to what we were saying last episode about how it's very spy. It's more kind of spy than it is, say, in some of the James Bond films that we've had around this period of time. Um, you know, with kind of the monitoring of her. But we get some great shots of Sydney here. Um, there's, I'm just looking at here the sweeping shot. Uh, I think that's sort of the Milsons Point area where they've kind of got all the rich houses. Uh, the Prime Minister of Australia is one of his residences over in that area. They love the Opera House in this movie, because why not? Um, and then filming on this boat, we, we get this, basically this whole big lead up to her, uh, meeting, uh, Ambrose at this pretty fancy house. In the meantime, it's kind of intersected with the outback because why wouldn't you have a, um, a good guy's lair in the middle of nowhere where there would be no reception for internet or cell phones <laughs> and literally they would be in another state thousands of kilometers away. This makes no sense. All right, they should be like they should be in Brisbane. That's closer to where they are right now. They should be in Hobart, basically. Like I don't get why they're in the outback. Um, Ving Rhames is back, yay! Um, and who's this Australian guy who is the most stereotypical Australian guy ever to be an Australian guy? Every single line he has to drop the word mate. What's his name? Yeah, Billy Billy Baird's the name. John Paulson. Is he actually Australian? Because if he isn't, he does a fantastic... He is. He's Australian. Okay. Um, yeah, he's, um, he's done a lot of directing. Like, uh, I remember seeing... Uh, the, there was a movie, Hide and Seek, with Robert De Niro years ago, and I saw his name, and I'm like, oh, Billy Baird directed a movie, but he's mostly done TV now, but, like, a ton of TV. Like, he's a pretty successful director now. He he found a trop fest, which, I mean, that means nothing to you, but that, that's a very um, prominent... Trop fest, a trop. It's it's a yearly short film festival, which is very, very big here. And basically, you know, they have a huge screening of it in Botanical Gardens, funnily enough, in Sydney, where you see the final scene. Um, and, like, cities around Australia will, you know, on the same night they do that, they will, like, do a, a streaming night at the same time. So I remember in Hobart, these have, like, a big outdoor festival where you could go and watch the films at the same time. And, you know, each year they'll get, uh, like, a big-name actor to come out and uh, judge it, I believe. I don't know if it was this year or last year, the most recent one. They actually got Susan Sarandon to come out and be sort of the the one who judged it. But, yeah, no, Tropfest is a, is a huge... Huge film festival here, so um, he founded it. I did not know that. But, yeah, he literally says the word mate, like, once every three seconds. <laughs> it's like, mate, 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 mate. Uh, but I like him. He's kind of cool. I'm guessing we don't see him anymore after this movie. No. That's no. the other thing that uh, changes, I guess, with Mission Impossible 4 and then into 5, uh, is that Tom Cruise always wanted completely different team members. He's like, he wanted to be Ethan and Luther, and then you had different team members every time. So we're getting a completely different team in three and then four. I do like when he steps in the, the what's he say, like, shit! He's like, yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, that's kind of funny. But I do, like, this is, there's lots of slow mo, there's some fun scenes in this, but the, maybe the most dramatic part in this entire film <laughs> I know is when Teddy Newton is about to lose a scarf. <laughs> Like, can we can we make sure we do some sort of uh, you know Hall of Fame at the end of all Mission Impossible movies? And number one, Tandy Newton's scarf gets blown yeah. away and is caught dramatically just as she's about to lose it. Like, what is that scene? Like that. 
Why isn't that in the trailer? Like, you know, like, this is a Mission Impossible. A Mission Difficult is Mission Impossible. Should be walking apart for you. Dun, 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 dun. Catches the sky. Like, um, the purpose She does look pretty good scene... on the pier, though. Can I just point that out quickly? Just there? <laughs> well, in the whole movie. Uh. I will say with the scarf, I understand the purpose. This is where I think certain things get lost in the translation. And that's not like John Woo literal translation. It's just (laughs) certain things that work better. Maybe if you can get different performance out of people. I can imagine how John Woo would have done this in like Hard Boiled or The Killer or Better Tomorrow or something. Where the whole idea is like a build up. That the villain might just be bringing her in to kill her. Like he's on to her. And then when he reaches, it could be like you know, uh, slap her or stab her or something like that. But instead he grabs a scarf. We have no context here. So it's like, he's building the tension without you seeing any looks on any people's faces or any implication that he might do anything else. Like you just throw one line in there of, we don't know what he's going to do to her. You may actually, you know, already be onto her and be killing her or something like that. As soon as he sees her, but it's just him reaching for a scarf. It's like the weirdest shot in mission impossible history. I wonder how many takes this took. Like, I oh, know that wasn't believable enough. Like, can we do that again? Uh, and then even just the look on her face, like, after he catches it, she's like, mm-hmm. she's like got doomy eyes. <laughs> like, I'm looking at the scene right now. And then he puts it on her, pulls her towards him. Can we, again, just establish that she apparently walked out on him. So, like, yeah. like why all of a sudden? This is, again, where he's dumb and Richard Roxburgh's smart. Because, like, we see him looking at this, you know, dramatic scarf moment. Um, and he's just got, like, these eyes, like, super suspicious eyes. And yet, he's all like, oh, she's back. And she's all like, oh, you caught my scarf. I want you now. (laughs) 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 And meanwhile, we've got, you know, Ethan and the gang in the middle of nowhere with their perfect reception. Uh, (laughs) finally zooming in. On them, to which Tom Cruise is all dramatically all like, oh, "No, the love of my life is back with a man that she once was with, which I knew was part of the mission." But for some reason, I'm so shocked right now that they're back together. Like, what did she? What did he think was going to happen? Like, I know he doesn't like it, but surely by this point he's got to be professional. Although I guess we do get the perfect timing of them macking it on and making out. And what does um, our Aussie friends say? Like, oh, you know, she knows There's how to a kiss who a knows man. How to give a- there's a bloke who knows how to give a proper welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Which then Luther just sort of looks at him and goes, Oh, don't worry, Luther. You were, you were very friendly as well. <laughs> <laughs> I do say, in, in this movie, which I don't particularly like, I do like Luther and, and this Aussie guy. Like, I do, they are fun. Um, so, yes, Billy. I'll, I'll get Billy. I'll remember his name um, <laughs> by the end of this movie, I think. Billy, don't! Uh, you're just as bad as the people who made this place. Alan. Sorry, uh, wrong movie. <laughs> uh, but, uh, after we get some zooming in and stuff, um, we then get, uh, oh, um, William Maypole that actually gets to talk for once. Uh, yeah. so they do some sort of scanniness all over her to see if she's got any bugs on her. Uh, but like, Surely there's something that they can track that with because, like, this is a a device in her that's transmitting a signal. So even if they can't pinpoint, like, how... I don't know technology. I'm dumb, all right? Probably shouldn't have just gotten a job at a customer support line. But, hey, that's another story. (laughs) 
But like, surely there's some sort of signal being transponded out of her body that he can be like, well, there's something on her, but we can't detect it, if you know what I mean. Um, well, I don't even think that's so much the issue. It's the fact they say it can only be tracked by this computer or whatever. It's more concerning that this guy worked for IMF three days earlier. And if this is just standard issue stuff, he should know that this exists. Well, he knows everything else later on with what they're going to do when they break into a building. Mm -hmm. So, um, we get a dramatic scene about wanting to wear a dress and then not wear a dress and (laughs) then, (laughs) um, they have sex. Then we get, um, Tom Cruise dramatically staring off into the sun, doing his best Luke Skywalker. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and, yeah, then we basically learn of... This is all leading up. We're going to the races, essentially. There's going to be a, a drop-off of a, a card. Uh, Richard Roxburgh is uh, a bit suspicious of Tandy Newton, rightfully so. Uh, and this ultimately leads to him getting his finger chopped off, which, you know, it's 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 dramatically evil. Like, I'm an evil villain, so I've got to do something evil. But I, the one thing that... I do like about this is kind of the payoff, what this will lead to later on when we realise who this is, kind of the blood on the bandage. Yeah. I think that's clever. Um, but I, I do like throughout this whole sequence when we essentially see the technology of the year 2000 with that giant digital camera with the 32 megabyte memory card. Ooh, <laughs> what what could they store with such large storage devices? <laughs> 32 megabytes? You might even be able to fit two minutes of this podcast on that. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, the thing that baffles me is when we eventually see what's on this memory card, there's, like, fancy graphics, there's moving pictures. Like, I used to have 1.4 megabyte floppy disks, all right? I was lucky to save three pictures and a text file on that. (laughs) That was 1.4 megabytes. 30 of these, you're not going to have the extent of those moving images that we get. Um, I might just lump all this into the, the racing scene here. Uh, this is Randwick Racecourse, a real race, um, track in Australia. And if you look at the horses, it says Sydney Cup on it. So I don't actually know if they filmed this at the Sydney Cup. Uh, it's not as well known as the Melbourne Cup, which is one of the most famous races in the world. But, uh, anyway, Sydney need to do it. But apparently Ambrose and, um, Naya know everything there is to know about horse racing because they keep picking winners every five <laughs> seconds. Um, which, you know, maybe this should be a movie. Like, is he like some sort of rain man or something like that? Or have they rigged the horse races? I don't know. Um, he goes off and does a drop off with this guy with the 32 megabyte card. Uh, Tan and Newton and Tom Cruise stare at each other in binoculars. Um, which, you know, is a thing. And then, um, they have a fancy dramatic scene with giving money. She steals the card, gives it to Tom Cruise, gets it back, and then goes back. And there's a dramatic scene with Richard Roxburgh and a door and Billy. Uh, <laughs> I, I, oh, sorry, I, mate. <laughs> it, I mean, it is kind of, it's done well that it, it does feel tense, but at the same time, like, you know, Richard Roxburgh is onto everything here right now. And yet somehow, you know, smart old Ambrose, as you said, who's a former IMF agent 10 minutes previously to this movie, and yet he doesn't go out of his way to think anything like this could happen. I mean, he does kind of get suspicious, obviously, when, you know, he feels the memory card going back in his pocket. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, it's it's tense, but it is it is what it is, I guess. I don't know where that was going. Um, 
Great analysis by the Oz Network yet again. <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, where do we start here? Oh, okay, so, yeah, other than the weird scarf shot. Uh, first of all, I, I love the introduction of Billy and Luther, and I think everybody knew that Ving Rhames was going to come back, and we mentioned on the first episode, like, at the point where Mission Impossible 1 came out, Ving Rhames was sort of just starting to get attention. And by the time Mission Impossible 2 came out, I mean, he's on a huge role. I mean, Con Air, Out of Sight, Entrapment... Uh, so this is kind of like the peak of his career. And I remember just a lot of people being excited. It wasn't such a normal thing, especially when you have like, a, if you have a diehard movie, right? You're not even going to have other actors necessarily always come back in a diehard movie. So to bring the supporting character back from the first one, people like Bing Rames. And I don't even think that the character is the same necessarily. He seems like a completely different guy this time. And of the all the movies he's in, this one might have like the least amount for him to do, which is uh, a little bit of a problem I have. But but still, just the, the little things he does in here, like how the eye rolls he has with Billy, when he even says, uh, you put me on a helicopter with this man for the last three hours, <laughs> you just get that tension between these two guys. Like, I want them to have a buddy comedy movie. And this is one of the areas where I feel like this movie's just too much of Tom Cruise by himself, because I think we could have done with a lot of Billy and Luther together and just the awkwardness between them. Why Billy is there, I don't know. Because he, he basically introduces himself with, you know, William Baird's the name. You can call me Billy. Uh, anything you want, I can get it. Uh, I'm going to go have a look around. And he goes, ha-ha! <laughs> like, this is really exciting laugh. <laughs> so much personality, but he basically says, I can get you whatever you want. The only thing they need in this entire movie is the laptop that Luther already brought. So, like, what his role is, I don't know. He flies a helicopter. That's it. <laughs> he's busy running. He is, yeah. <laughs> Only got three more lessons, mate. <laughs> but like, they had no when he, expense. When he's putting together his team, so like, you pick any two members you want. It's like, all right, I need Luther because I always have Luther, and I need somebody that can fly a helicopter and Team's speak complete. Australian. Yeah, and there's a lot of points in this movie where it almost becomes, like I said, nauseating, where it's like Tom Cruise like, no, I got to go it alone, guys. <laughs> this is just sort of the beginning of it. I mean, this laptop, it's like with the scarf, they're cutting back and forth. It's just a moment that, that doesn't need to have this kind of tension, or there's probably a better way to build tension. You're watching a Mission Impossible movie, you don't want to be like, dun, 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 dun. Oh, we lost reception. Oh, it's back. <laughs> oh, it's out again. Another scarf has nearly fallen off her. Oh, no. Yeah, it's between the scarf and the the Wi-Fi continually <laughs> dropping. It's just it's not tense at all. And it just it feels like it's trying too hard. Uh, but the horse race stuff, I'm going to say I, I love this sequence, even though, again, when you watch it, there's nothing to it. This is one of the few moments that really feels like a Mission Impossible TV episode because they just show up there. They, they never sit down and say, this is our plan. And the TV show they may have like a quick briefing, but then you'll they'll just show up and everybody's sort of playing a character or doing their own thing and you don't know what they're doing. Uh, I like the, the, the first time we see Billy, he's just handing her the program too. This, this is the qualifications. Good at flying helicopters and handing programs out <laughs> when he was recruiting them. Uh, but the, the, the conversations they have like with, with Nia and Ethan here, again, it's very forced. This is the whole, what are you going to do, spank me thing that just doesn't work at all. And then it is funny, though, when Luther, like this is why Bing Rings is so great. Luther comes in just at that moment where, uh, you know, he's like, don't turn around, right? And she turns around and looks right at him. Like, 
he just looks at her, you turned around. <laughs> it's know, he's really it's, like, it's, it's, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, sorry, I completely, I wrote, I did, I forgot to write, but yeah, like just, it's so, it's up there with the scarf. It's like, you turned around. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but then leave it up to Ving Rames to just suddenly walk in the frame and he sees them looking at each other like they're ready to kill each other now. And he's just like, <clears throat> like card please I really uh, want him to like when she goes what are you going to do spank me I'd love to just laugh so much if he did spank her like yeah. yes <laughs> uh, but I mean the sequence really has nothing going on for it but it's such a good setting it's funny when this came out this is one of those sequences a lot of people were talking about like, I really loved like it felt like a classic spy sequence and I remember reading somebody say something that it was ripped off of an Alfred Hitchcock movie Notorious and for years, I just sort of, I'm like, uh, I think I saw that movie before Mission Impossible, but like, I didn't quite understand it all. I was maybe a little bit young. And then I, just as I was doing research for this movie, I found uh, this this one leak where it says that there was a more recent commentary that was done where somebody noticed all the similarities between this and the Alfred Hitchcock movie, Notorious. The movie Notorious is basically about a spy who is told to recruit a woman that he finds out later on he's recruiting so that she can get back together with her ex so that they could get information off of him. Uh, they put them together at a horse race uh, where there's basically an identical scene to this. It's literally the exact same movie. <laughs> wow. Plot point for plot point. So I, I think, I don't know if I ever watch Mission Impossible 2 again, I'd want to watch Notorious first to just see how unoriginal this was because I think the Mission Impossible movies, even the ones that don't get like the best reviews basically being like the first one got like average reviews people like the plot is pretty complicated this is almost too simple and the things that are complicated about it now you find out they're stolen from a movie it almost i don't know it lessens the impact of the movie for me uh but i still think the setting is great but you you really sit down and think about what's going on the scene like your classic mission impossible heists think about them stealing the knockless in the first one everybody's got their role and you're not quite sure what they're doing until they do it here it's like I'm going to have you, like if Ian's, Ethan's doing the briefing, he's like, I'm going to have you give her the program that has a little note in it that says, put in this earpiece. Then I'm going to tell her to steal the memory card. Then I'm going to tell her to meet me. Then Luther's going to copy the memory card. Then they're going to get back. That's like something that like undercover cops can do. This isn't impossible mission stuff. <laughs> like there are so many things you could have done to make this way more complicated. And it's just, I, I don't know. Story wise, it just does not work at all. Um, That's actually a very good point. Like, throughout this whole movie, there's maybe one sequence which is technically an impossible mission. But even then, I think there's stuff that we're going to get to with that scene that really they could have done differently. (laughs) But, you know, Mm -hmm. what am I? I'm no IMF agent. Uh, We did miss the... (laughs) (laughs) Working at a Just remove my mask. (laughs) Would have gotten away with it, see, if I had just kept my mouth shut. Uh, we did miss Wallace, uh, a.k.a. our good friend William Maple. There's a great line, Mmm, no flies on her. <laughs> L- let's add that to our list of Mission Impossible mmms. When we get him franchise. on the show, if we get him back on the show, because he we, yes. we hopefully, because he did when we interviewed him about Lost, say he would come back on the show to talk about this film, so we're going to try and get him back on. Um, that is what we want him to say. Like, Can you please quote your famous line, from yeah. Mission Impossible, mm, no flies on her, followed by your famous live from Lost, hello Claire. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is more iconic? Uh, you'd be the judge. Uh, I am going to go back to the, the previous scene, though, with uh, um, Richard Roxborough in a second, uh, because 
just want to finish up one other thing here with <laughs> this video on the memory card that's like top secret video that they've already watermarked property of biosite so that if this ever gets out there and they see that somebody who's made a virus to wipe out the world for the purpose of being capitalist corporation it's stamped. This is like the Simpsons. Yeah, but what if what if they discover the property of Bart Simpson at the bottom of the well? <laughs> property of John uh, McCloy. This, this, this is how they discovered Osama bin Laden was behind 9-11. They found a video that said property of Al-Qaeda. Like, oh, damn it! We knew we were going to get away with it, and we had to put that timestamp on it. Well, what's even better is that this video footage or whatever, this is basically what Nikorovich would have taken, Right. This was his evidence of what's going on. So he's probably made this video behind the scenes. Like, I'm going to put together a case so that, you know, the the IMF knows what McCloy is doing, and what Biosite's going to try to do to, to kill the off the world or whatever. So he's editing together all of these things before he injects himself in his 20 hours. He puts it together and he's like, I'm going to put watermark to the bottom, property of Biosite. <laughs> Registered trademark, 2000. <laughs> you should put it like a rival company on it, like property of Coca-Cola. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> this is Coca-Cola's idea, not Biosite. <laughs> uh, just going back to the uh, scene with uh, Stamp and um, Ambrose, like there's something about the really ridiculous over-the-topness of Ambrose that I love in this movie. Um, the fact that he does cut off his finger, I- I'm interested to know this is where that backstory could have really come in handy. And again, it's not that there's lack of screen time for Ambrose. He has a ton to do in this movie. It's just that they don't explore you know, his reasons and everything. Even the scene where uh, Nia is talking about, you know, there's there's one creep I know, uh, or he, she says that Stamp is a bit of a creep, and uh, which that that <laughs> some other implications, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, Ethan says we know who he is, so they they know this guy's a criminal. Ambrose obviously has a pretty close relationship with these guys if he could cut off their finger. Like, at what point was IMF starting to get clued in, hey, you're hanging out with a lot of bad people here? (laughs) Maybe this is why nobody's surprised later on. Uh, But going back to the the scene with uh, Stamp and Ambrose here, when he cuts off his finger, I like that uh, just the way that uh, he taunts him and goes, she wasn't exactly gagging for it when she left you six months ago. And then Ambrose's line at the end where he goes, uh, I am gagging for it, which is just <laughs> the most awkward line anybody could possibly speak. Uh, but that's, he that's says like, something. That's like our very first one when we did uh, Twister. It'd be like, better than what you sniff. Yeah, better than what you sniff. I am <laughs> gagging for it. <laughs> now apologize. <laughs> then feel better. Feel better. <laughs> Alan <laughs> um, I just want to talk about Stamps the bees, character the bees. Sorry <laughs> Did you It's all coming back lo- to me It's a John Woo movie Don't get me started Face Ah <laughs> Did you catch the line that Ambrose has to him where he says, uh, some of us actually have the burden of sex to deal with Stamp? Like, he's implying that, like, Stamp's got some weird celibate 
thing going on or, or that he doesn't have interest in women. What's his name for James Bond? Who was the one who didn't have sex? Uh. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Vargas, yeah. <laughs> Vargas, he's Vargas. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it just makes it weird later on where uh, Naya's referring to say, uh, Hugh Stamp. He's a bit of a creep and then some. Like, why? Because he doesn't want to hit on you? Like, this is the one guy who's not trying to bed you this entire movie, and you call him a creep. Exactly. You, uh, but meanwhile, you've got somebody checking you out on a computer saying there's flies on you or not flies on you or... Yeah! You know? <laughs> this is the one guy who's not gagging for it, okay? Like, show him some respect. Now, apologize! <laughs> and feel better! Uh... <laughs> And why why does Richard Roxburgh, like, have to have a South African accent? Is there just something about South Africans that make them more evil? Because we had that in um, Black Panther with what's-his-name. Like, they... I, I, I mean, the South African accent does admittedly sound kind of evil. No offence to our South African listeners. Hello, Gillian, should you be listening? But it's kind of <laughs> like, I'm South African, I'm very evil, ha 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 As opposed to, like, I'm Australian, I'm evil, ha 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 I couldn't pinpoint what his accent was supposed to be. I think he's got a great voice, too. Like, this guy needs yeah. to be doing voiceover. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm does. 90% certain he's trying to be South African because it just, it's got that kind of... A South African accent is just that blend of English, Australian, New Zealand. You know, it's Dutch. It's got... You know, that's what it kind of is. It's English and Dutch. It's Afrikaans and, yeah. But, like, it's got a distinct sound. Once you know what the South African accent... It's kind of like the Welsh accent. If you know what it sounds yeah. like, it's hard to do, but you know what it is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But um, can we just back also with the horse race? You know what it was missing, Colin? It was missing somebody shouting it, Move your ass, Flo! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's where we needed something. We needed money penny in the background. <laughs> Anthony Hopkins, move your ass, Flo. That's not Anthony <laughs> Hopkins. I don't know who that was, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, James <laughs> Move your ass, Flo. <laughs> um, <laughs> who was that? Uh, <laughs> so through all of this, through all the meeting, we should mention that this meeting with the 32 megabyte memory card was with the CEO of Bioside, John C. McCloy. Um, that sounds like, um, I think it doesn't sound like, it just reminds me of, I'm Roy McClure. No, Troy McClure from The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> Roy McClure. You might remember me from such films like, <laughs> Hi, I'm John C. McCloy. You may remember for such virus outbreaks as SARS or West Nile. Can I just put out quickly something to you with The Simpsons? Slightly off topic. I saw an article during the week. It was like, you know, 15 times that The Simpsons made fun of Canada. And I, I, I probably saw it. I don't know what episode it was, but there was one where they've got a sign of Winnipeg. It says, like, welcome to Winnipeg. We were born here. What's your excuse? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, like, what episode that was from, but I want to see it. Do you know that episode? There is, uh, no, I, I, I know I've seen it somewhere, but I know the episode where, uh, there's this really stressed out dad driving. It was, all right, back to Winnipeg, which they used on the commercials when this was aired locally in Winnipeg. That was, like, the commercial. <laughs> the Simpsons, Sunday nights. All right, back to Winnipeg. <laughs> Um, so yes, we've met John McCloy from previously from such outbreaks as we just did that joke. Um, <laughs> uh, so he's been blackmailed by Ambrose, but this all leads into obviously they've seen the 32 megabyte card with the film on it. So now IMF knows what's going on. Uh, we should also mention that Ethan has gone off that, uh, Tanner Newton told her to get out of Australia. You've done your job. 
So this is um, we see Ambrose watching this clip uh, of um, Troy. I'm just going to call him Troy McClure. Um, talking about <laughs> um outbreaks. Can I just point out? There's a Tasmanian reference in this uh, video clip when he's saying, like, you know, we manage this disease, we manage this disease. He says we brave, uh, we brave the influenza quarantine um on Bruni Island last month. Now, mm. Bruni Island is an island about oh, I think it's like an hour's drive from Hobart. Um, and you can catch a ferry across. So there's not many people live there. So if there was an influenza outbreak on Bruny Island, it's not really going to do much. Kill a penguin or something like that. But like, I mean, it's, we it's sold a beautiful We 34 little... vaccines that day. <laughs> but I just, I just wonder if like the screenwriters have just gone, okay, we need to find a random island. Oh, what's this island here in Tasmania? Bruny Island. <laughs> uh, so. I do love the the subtle name drop here for an island in Tasmania. They should have just said Tasmania. How funny would it have been? We braved the influence of quarantine in Tasmania last month. Um, so Troy McClure, meanwhile, is leaving the building uh, and he gets kidnapped in his uh, limousine. Um, George, take me home. George, George. Um, the thing that I think is really, I did enjoy about this kind of, this whole sequence is that it's kind of that red herring where you are believing that this is Ambrose kidnapping him. Yeah. And then, like, on the flip side, you think that Ethan's getting uh, nigher out when, obviously, it's it's the opposite. So, that's something that I did not remember. So, even I was thrown with that. I think that's cleverly done. Um, he sees a newspaper that means he's going to get knocked out. I don't get why they go out of their way to print a newspaper saying that he's going to die if they're just going to, you know, release him and just get him for me. It's, it's weird. It's, they, they go to a lot of lengths here for, for realness, apparently, IMF. Um, and they get him back into a, they've got him in a chamber and essentially we, this is where we find everything out, uh, cause, uh, Ethan's posing as Dimitri. Uh, you were dead. You were meant to be dead. Uh, and essentially they created this disease so that they can create the cure for it. Um, and I think we've had a few lines here which we haven't mentioned about there's always got to be a villain if you're a hero or something along those lines. Like we hear that a few times, teasing Survivor Season 20, which wouldn't be filmed for another 10 years. But anyway. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, is this also where we're finding a little bit more about the 20 hour? Um, I know we learned a little bit about it. How did I know he needed to be treated within 24 or within 20 hours? Yeah, which, I mean, it's, it's a clever little stick that they do with this disease. Uh, notice how I haven't tried to pronounce it once at all this episode because I'm not going to be able to say it clearly. (laughs) You can't pronounce chimera? Chlamydia? Um, I don't know. (laughs) Well, the the other one. (laughs) Chlamydia. Uh, the cure, um, genital warts, I don't know, um, bio... Bellerophone. B- Bele- Bellerophone. The chocolate Bavarian. It's, it's... <laughs> Yum, I want a chocolate Chlamydian! Bavarian. Chlamydian, the cure for chlamydia. He's <laughs> a chocolate Bavarian cheesecake. Mmm. Uh, if, 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 seriously, that was a cure for chlamydia, I'd get chlamydia more often. But we oh. find out... <laughs> Hey, I'm a virgin, remember? We already established that this episode. Because uh, <laughs> I have chlamydia. Uh, <laughs> funny. <laughs> Why do I say things and think they're going to be funny? They're not. I just come across a sad bed. Rethink your life. Feel better. Um, 
I want I want there to be Ethan Hunt MD coming soon to our TV screens. <laughs> Doctor, I'm not feeling well. I've got a fever. Take these drugs and feel better. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like ER intro with like <laughs> spinning back in his chair, doing the karate chop like Eric LaSalle. <laughs> They've just redone the entire ER sequence that you're saying out. Oh, it's too much Tom Cruise. It's just Tom Cruise playing every character in ER. Ethan Hunt, MD. Feel better! <laughs> Doctor, we've had an emergency. An elevator shaft has collapsed and 13 people have been crushed. We need some assistance right now. All right, who's this person? What's your name? John. Feel better! What's your name? Sam. Feel better! What's your name? Jenny. Feel better! All right, they're all cured. Moving on. Oh Lord, we should be scriptwriters. Um <laughs> Hey, well we've already reviewed well at least two of my films, so <laughs> you know we'd get a bit meta by just making movies and reviewing them. Uh, Rotten Tomato said Colin Hilding's new film was only twenty one percent. Well I think that's bullshit. It was brilliant. Um Anyway, so <laughs> the review here is that Dimitri isn't Dimitri He's Ethan. Oh, um, and we then also find out that Ethan's not Ethan. Ethan's Ambrose. Ooh, which again, shouldn't he have done this earlier? Like, why doesn't he believe Richard Roxburgh and chops his finger off? Like, if he is an IMF agent, he knows all these sort of tricks and trades that they're going to do. Shouldn't that be the first thing that he does? Like, on the mm-hmm. very first night, like, have sex with the first, fair enough. But then later <laughs> that night, like, you know, break in, and then she's all going to be all like, oh, you're here to rescue me, I'm so glad you're here. And then later on he knows, and then poor old Richard Roxburgh doesn't lose a finger. So, I mean, I, he's, what again, if, he's dumb. What if also they, I mean, at the time, Ambrose thought he was taking this mission because they couldn't find Ethan, he was on vacation. How did he know it was going to be Ethan? Like, what if they hadn't found Ethan on his vacation? Like, did yeah. he, was he just going to try that? She's like, who are you, random man, grabbing me in the middle of the dark? He's like, oh, sorry. And then just goes and puts on a Luther costume. He's like, Luther! Oh, I'm so glad you're here. Shows like shows up in Emilio Estevev uh, outfit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were dead! Oh, shit, sorry, I am dead. Let me just go back to being dead. I'll be back in five minutes. Oh, he's on you you. Don't get me on you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and feel better when you do. Um... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, I don't even know what you just said. <laughs> if, if Ambrose just had to keep coming up with the costume, who's who are they going to send? Who's going to recruit Naya? And all of a sudden, I know, Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> I need you out tonight, Naya. <laughs> it's good to see you again. We, and then, you know what, it would have been really funny if, like, at one point they remove the mask and it's Pierce Brosnan and like, oh shit, sorry. And then they pull the, oh, like, he shows up as Pierce Brosnan. James Bond! Like, oh shit, sorry, hang on a minute. Oh, Ethan Hunt. Oh. You're sorry and I'm sorry, eh? <laughs> Thought I forgot ya! Uh, <laughs> uh, so now they've got to come up with a plan to basically get the, um, the virus and destroy it. Uh, we do get a fun little scene with Troy McClure waking up in his uh, uh, 
his um his car and there's a line about his driver having the flu. We also have um poor old Ambrose sad that he's not going to be able to bone Tandy Newton anymore. Well, he probably could, but in an evil way. Um, but they set up this uh to get the virus. They've got to go through this um air vent shaft thing. Which basically they've only got what is it forty seconds that they can get into there um, and go in and get all the vials. But at the same time, we're hearing Ambrose, who knows exactly what they're going to be doing, which again just makes no sense. That he's if he's this smart and he knows exactly what they're going to be doing, then he should be knowing everything that they're doing in this film. So like mm-hmm. it's kind of like the one time they use this as like a thing, which again they could have explored more. Like it's you know it's yeah. like in Golden Eye, like I know your every move, James. You know, like it's it's kind of it's a wasted opportunity that we could have really used this. And even if this is the case, if Ambrose literally knows, to a T, what they're going to be doing. All he ends up doing is sending in himself and guards through the lower levels and shooting his way up to the top. Why do they have to do this when Ethan's doing it? Come an hour earlier, take the things, you're done. That's it. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no reason he has to wait for Ethan to show up. Um, I don't get it. Anyway. Yeah. Can you you explain why they have to be there at the same time? Yes. But it not not in any way of it not being, you know, bad writing. Just <laughs> they do explain <laughs> it in the movie. <laughs> okay. Um But we do then kind of go do you want to say anything about this setup before we get to the action scene? I just think this is the most Mission Impossible sequence in the movie, and I love the whole double swerve that they do, which they're gonna do twice uh, in this movie, uh, with the the different masks and everything and uh, I don't know. I think this movie kind of developed a reputation uh, in between this and like the third one uh, that there was an overuse on the whole masks thing. But I don't know. I think movies have just changed so much now that this doesn't feel that overdone to me. I think it it did in 2000. It felt like the the whole everybody's in a mask was just done to death. But maybe we've just had so many more outrageous spy movies since then that this doesn't feel like – it doesn't feel like it's out of place at all. It feels like this is an appropriate amount of masks that we see in the movie. Um, and the way that they reveal it is kind of weird though. Like obviously they're going to kidnap McCloy. And I like, that's the, the traditional mission possible thing. They're in the middle of a mission. You don't even know what they're doing until they've revealed. And Ethan's taken off that mask and everything. Uh, but just the fact that like, this is all hinging on the fact that they need to force, they don't need the confession. They kind of already know what Ambrose has. So it's like they're playing this like they need the confession on McCloy. But basically this entire thing is set up just so they could get him to say the the thing, John C. McCloy. <laughs> like, <laughs> what if he hadn't said that? What if he just said, I, John, am in the business of making money? Like, can you say it with your full name? Why? You That's know, weird. It's like an awesome power thing. They'd be like, yes, but what's your name? John, yeah. <laughs> what's your what's your luck? McCloy, can you say why, why would I say that together? <laughs> like, What's your like name? Some... John McCloy. And your middle name? Charles. <laughs> Can you give me the initial? C. Now say it all together. John McCloy. Middle initial C. No, no, no. Put the initial in the middle. Wait John a minute. C. You're McCloy. recording this, aren't you? So you can break into the vault. <laughs> I will not say my full name three times. <laughs> but like, they don't actually need a confession out of them. But I still think the scene plays fine. And also, I just want to mention the actor who plays McCloy here, Brendan Gleeson. He's one of these actors that pops up in a lot of things and most people don't really know him by name. Like, this guy should be a legend. I mean, he's in Braveheart. He's in Troy. 
Uh, he's in Harry Potter. He's in The Village. He's uh, in Mission Impossible. Um, he was in Edge of Tomorrow, another one with Tom Cruise. Paddington he's just 2. Such- Paddington 2, yeah. <laughs> Soon to be coming on the Oz Network. But he's such a, like, he's such a good actor, and this is kind of one of his smaller roles. And at a point where his career, I mean, he had had Braveheart, but it's not like, you know, a lot of people were desperate to give me the actor who played Hamish in Braveheart. I need him as my next leading man. But I guess particularly after like Troy came out, you start to see him in a lot of movies like that, a lot of these big epic movies. So I'm a big fan of Brendan Gleeson. I love him in pretty much everything. Um, I like the way that they cut back for like you, you kind of made fun of like the whole Ambrose knows everything. I agree that it is something that needs to be explored in the movie more. I don't think that it doesn't make sense. It's just the whole idea is these characters both know each other so well. And they kind of just brush it off with Ethan's knowledge who goes, Ambrose is going to go in tonight to get this stuff. So we got to get it first. And then Ambrose is like, this is what Ethan will do. And he, these are these are things that for some of them, the audience knows just from watching the first movie. Like I, I remember when he had that line, he goes – uh, Ethan would rather uh, perform some, you know, incredible act of acrobatics uh, coming from above before he'd ever, you know, uh, bothered hurting a hair on somebody's head. That actually got a laugh in the theater because everybody remembered the the black vault scene from the first one. So he's saying things that even the audience knows about him. But yeah, they could have gone a lot further with this of this idea that both these guys know each other so well and who's going to be the one that can one ops them because they keep predicting what the next one's going to do. Uh, but I guess we're going to, we'll talk about the sequence separately here, but just to go along with the explanation as to why they need to be there at the same time. Uh, it's because, again, it's lazy writing. It's just, oh, how do we have the characters there at the same time? Uh, Ambrose has a line where he says, Ethan's going to be breaking in uh, at the very moment that the generators kick in, which also is the very moment when the guards change shifts, which is going to make it easiest for us to break in from the ground floor, which right. really doesn't need to be that time because they just go in there and shoot everybody anyways so i don't know yeah. how maybe six more guards would have caused a problem for them in this entire building but at least it's sort of lazily explained well yeah i mean that makes sense but as you said they do kind of sort of just walk in and just mow everyone down so it's yeah kind of, <laughs> there is that um one thing i want to quickly say when we kind of get this nice sweeping shot of sydney at night you get a very uh a close-up of what is was called the center point tower now it's called the sydney tower um and you actually can see on it, they've got statues of athletes on it. So there's uh, one in a wheelchair, like basketballer. There's, a, I think, a runner and maybe a, a gymnast. And these were actually giant statues they put on top of it during the Sydney Olympics. Um, mm. So, again, kind of, you know, seeing that, like, I think they kept them up on top of the tower for a few years after that, but they're not there anymore. But it was kind of like a, a cool little thing that, you know, dates this movie in the fact that this is just before the Sydney Olympics. Um, to kind of, to see that on there, but we get our, uh, Mission Impossible dangling scene 2.0. Um, nowhere near as dramatic and tense. Um, what sort of building has a weird vent that opens for 40 seconds and closes and allows somebody to like jump through there? There's no sensor pads or anything along those lines like we had in the first movie. Um, you know, admittedly, maybe like birds keep falling in there, so they kept setting the sensor pads <laughs> off or something. Wild kangaroos or something like that. I don't know. Um, so the thing also that I don't understand is that Ving Rames at some point says about the, the vent that he can't control it. Yet in this whole sequence, when Tom Cruise is jumping into it, he's like, I haven't got control of it yet. So what, does that make sense to you? 
No, and and that's the biggest for me. One of the biggest plot holes in the movie because let's say he can control it or can't. The whole idea is like I'm not ready yet, and Billy's counting down like we need to go now. We need to go now, but like they don't know when this thing's gonna open. Isn't the whole idea you jump when the things open? So yeah. whether Luther has control or not, there shouldn't be some severe rush. So that always to me kind of played like uh, you're just trying to get some type of tension it's almost like the scarf shot uh <laughs> we need to go now but like you don't explain why you have to go now so it just kind of feels awkward i think the scarf shot was more dramatic if i have to be completely honest yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but i mean even sort of just the way he falls down i, I want that again i feel like there needs to be an awesome powers parody or something like this when like he goes to fall through the vent and he just goes face plant smack bang he's like ow <laughs> do it again <laughs> um but doesn't Tom Cruise's flowing locks suit this scene very well when he falls down the <laughs> vent and his hair's blowing in the wind? Um, and the way he sort of lands kind of does that flip and there's that guard that's just watching and then, you know, it's all tense. Will they get the rope up in time through the vent? Which, I mean, again, does it really matter if they miss out on this one because it's going to open again in how long? So, you know, as long as they don't claim it, there's no sensors or anything along those lines. Um but, you know, I guess it's sort of dramatic. Uh, meanwhile, Tom Cruise gets in there. I, I like to alternate between calling him Tom Cruise and Ethan Hunt. Um, I do like <laughs> the bit where he, he cuts open the glass, so I do love those laser things where they can cut through glass. I think they're really cool. It does feel very espionage and spy the way they kind of do very this bit. Die another um, day. Die another day. Yes, thank you. You brought it up, not me. Um, even the fades, like, uh, one thing is, it's interesting fades they do throughout this sequence, so they kind of, like, zoom in on Tom Cruise's face, and then they zoom in on Ambrose's face, they're kind of like, these are the same person. Um, which, I mean, it's clever, but again, we need more exploration on it to kind of get any effect on it. Uh, and Ethan sees all the guns of all the, um, the vials of the diseases here, which he promptly destroys, Except for one, which he hesitates. And again, this whole movie's over if he doesn't hesitate yeah. and have a flashback. Like, he literally has flashbacks for like 10 seconds. Just destroy it! Like, that's all you have to do! Um, and, but the goons show up and we have a, a pretty intense shootout though. I mean, it's a, mm-hmm. you talk about the action scenes in this film. It's, it's done very well, the way it's sort of, it's shot. And then it sort of all leads up to Naya showing up and injecting herself with the last vial, um, which I don't get why he still doesn't just kill her and get her blood afterwards. Like, that's all he kind of... I don't know why he needs to keep her alive, but I guess he wants to spread the disease out, as we'll find out later. Mm-hmm. Throughout all of this, uh, poor old Ving Rames has a bomb put on his truck, and somehow he manages to get away from that thing. It also destroys a Telstra phone box. So, um, sorry, Telstra, for having your phone box destroyed. And this doesn't create a commotion in Sydney at, like, what are we at, like 11 o'clock at night? I mean, this is pre-9-11, so bombs just went off all the time and no one was scared, I guess. Um, you know, the car yeah. bomb goes off in the first one when they're, where the, I think they're in Prague in the first one. Mm-hmm. And the police are there instantly. Lazy <laughs> Australian police. <laughs> They're all off having a beer. Come on. It's like, it's after 10 o'clock. <laughs> Australian police don't work after 10 o'clock. Beer. B-E-E-R. Tea. No, was it coffee? Not tea. Um, I mean, I do like the action scene. Like, I like it when, you know, we've got, um, Ethan sliding, you know, slow-mo, mowing down people with the gun. Um, you know, as he's on his side. That's pretty cool. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, it's, it, you said it earlier, like maybe the most dramatic and best scene we've had from Tanner Newton in some time when she injects herself. And this is something that I did always remember from watching this movie. Like I, I went this going like, I'm pretty sure she gets the disease. Um, because she's like betting all the men in this movie. I don't know. Uh, that's the third inappropriate comment for this episode, oh, Ben. Uh, <laughs> it's not chlamydia. Actually, it is. She just caught chlamydia. She just injected herself with chlamydia. She needs some Bavarian chocolate. <laughs> Quick, go to a bakery. She needs some Bavarian. She needs some Bavarian. Um, and I'll throw, I should have mentioned throughout all this scene, of course, uh, they're tracking, uh, th- that Luther and Billy can see the fact that Naya is there because they're tracking her. But this is what, seven minutes of radio silence that they can't talk to him. So they can't sort of pre-warn him that they're on the way. So this is why they sort of get the jump on him. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's an enjoyable action scene, although it is kind of funny when they're like shooting at the vial of disease and it kind of just spins awkwardly and they're like, no, don't shoot it. And then, like, five seconds later, let's bring in Tanny Newton and she'll just shoot herself with it. So, yeah. Um, it's exciting. I like this action scene. It's good, Colin Hilding. You, you know, the, the whole thing about shooting the, the Chimera, uh, vial, it's, it's basically the same thing that John Woo did in Broken Arrow. I don't know. You ever see Broken Arrow with John Travolta? No, no. Oh, that's probably, uh, in some ways, I'd say not not better than Face Off, but in some ways, maybe even I enjoy it more than Face Off for John Woo, like American action movies. But uh, there's a moment where it's all about a nuclear weapon that's stolen, and John Travolta and his crew are, you know, uh, trying to get this thing back, and his crew are all shooting, and John Travolta is just like, "Would you please not shoot the thermonuclear weapon?" <laughs> that's basically <laughs> the same idea they have here, but it, it works so much better when it's you know a bomb. Because I mean, if this thing goes off, they're locked down in a lab like what's the worst that happens ethan dies naya dies ambrose dies and a couple of goons die like that's best case scenario as they blow this thing up here uh but i guess some things about this do work i like the jump even though like you said it's not nearly as impressive it obviously there's some background that's cg here but uh there's something about this stunt that doesn't read as a stunt it looks too visual effects uh i don't know maybe it's because there's all these different shots or whatever but this was a legitimate jump where tom cruise jumped like you know like 200 feet or something like that in a studio and they filmed it in one shot so everything you're seeing was a real jump that he did but i don't know it's just it isn't filmed in a way where it it impresses the way that the the rock climbing does earlier on or any of the motorcycle stunts do later on so I think it could be better for that. Um, it's a great way to o- open in there. I do like the way he swings and, uh, you know, evades the guards. Luther sort of counting, like, a lot of these things in this movie are just complete coincidence. Like, how do we make an exciting action scene? They wrote the same th- the same way for the first movie, where they kind of had their action sequences and wrote the script around it. You know, famously, that's how all the Indiana Jones movies are written as well. They come up with action scenes. They're like, well, let's write the story to match these action scenes. But it's kind of just obvious here where it's like, you know, okay, we're going to have to have a countdown. So let's have it where the thing's only open for 20 seconds or whatever, like you said. It's just, it's a little too convenient. And it doesn't really make sense how the generators kicking in is going to block out all communication. Like, you have a computer that can track one chip anywhere in the world, even if the Wi-Fi drops, (laughs) but you can't communicate with Ethan. You don't have any type of communicator they can work when generators are kicking in in some medical building. You can building. communicate with people in the outback. You can't do it in yeah. downtown Sydney. 
Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of things too convenient here, which is, and again, I'm not knocking Tom Cruise. I mean, I'm going to have so much praise for Tom Cruise and all these movies, and I don't think it's his fault. It's just kind of the way that this is, people also forget, this is the way all action movies were at the time. This is why you had action stars like Bruce Willis, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone. Well, it was just one man, even James Bond, one man saving the day. And I just, I think maybe because they've done it so much better in the recent Mission Impossible movies by having these team efforts with still Tom Cruise taking the lead. It just, it bothers me here that everything has to be him. Ethan, you're going to have to be the one to do the suicidal dive and you're going to have to be the one to destroy the virus and you're going to be the one who's going to be completely out of communication. So we literally can do nothing here. Like, what's the point of having team members if they don't do anything? But but again, I like the whole interaction with Luther and Billy. Like when Luther's like, uh, Billy, we have a problem. Naya's signal's here. And he's like, what? What was that? It sounded like you just said that Naya was here. He's like, I did. She is. And he goes, uh, well then, she's not likely to be alone then, is she? I want more of these guys. Like, I think that's one of my complaints with this is you could have done more with the supporting cast. Uh, especially since this is a Mission Impossible team movie. But when he destroys the virus, yeah, it always bothered me because he gets inside and it's a cool stunt and it's cool when he's sneaking around, like he said, laser things. And then he gets in there and he just slowly walks towards something and shoots off guns dramatically in slow motion as we see like a big flash inside the gun. Like, what's the flash? I don't understand what the flash is. And why do they store these things in a way where you can destroy it with a gun that's right there? Like, mm. why would they build it this way? Why wouldn't they lock it away somewhere? Well, it just doesn't make sense why they would ever build a device that they could destroy it inside of a gun. Um, and the whole hesitation thing, like, that just doesn't work at all. But then the shootout happens, and I'm happy again. Because this is, like, a, a total John Woo sequence. I mean, this is like the, the shootout uh, in Face Off, um, uh, with the apartment shootout uh, with, with the Somewhere kid with the, the headphones. Yeah, Summer Over the Rainbow sequence, yeah. Uh, you know, you get the the really uh, sad music playing at parts of this too. Um, when you know Naya injects herself, like it's a big heroic movement. It's one of the. I think maybe it's because somebody's being given something to do other than Ethan Hunt in this movie. It plays more dramatically than it should because really, if you think about it, she does nothing else after this. And th- this, you could look at it as oh, she sacrificed herself, which is the way I kind of view the scene. But really, that was the only way she was going to save her life. She was going to yeah. deliver this to Ambrose, and then he was going to shoot her in the head. She guaranteed herself 20 more hours to stay alive. Uh, and she I, knows I love- that there's a chocolate Bavarian around the corner, so she's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the weird thing that happens here, though, is... Uh, oh, first of all, I just want to mention the really cheesy line where he goes, Hi, Ethan, how are you doing? Fighting off a bit of a cold. And he goes, that was the hardest <laughs> part about being you, grinning like an idiot every 15 minutes. You watch this movie... And, like, Tom Cruise legitimately does grin like an idiot every 15 minutes. And I'm not disparaging him to saying that. It's kind of just the Tom Cruise thing. Like, it's like Top Gun and everything else. He's just always grinning ear to ear. So I like all these things where Ambrose actually picks apart not just Ethan Hunt, but even Tom Cruise. And I wanted scenes like this, but, like, they don't even look at each other in the face here. We have all these great opportunities where you could have had a scene between Ambrose and Ethan. Just have them with their guns drawn looking at each other even so they could give performances they're like hiding behind walls here there's just much better ways to do this um when she injects herself ethan immediately hits one button on his watch and begins a 20-hour yes. count 
<laughs> like, did he have this queued up for some odd reason? And like, one watch has a 20-hour countdown. I, <laughs> like, if I'm going to set a time, let's say this is 2000, I'm setting a timer watch, I'm going to be like, Naya just injected herself. Okay, mode. Click, click, click. Okay, timer. Oh, I clicked one too far. Timer, all right. Oh, it's one hour. Okay, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. This is an even under Oh, I went to 20. Backward, 20. Okay, click. Started 20. Okay, now i got to remember. Subtract about a minute and a half because it took me a minute and a half to do that. That's the realest way this happens. He does it 20 minutes. Click, 20 minute countdown on the dots. And who knows it is 20 hours on the dots? Like when – I don't remember the name of the other scientist uh, who died, Nikorvich's uh, partner or whatever. But like Ulrich. when he, when he died – was it literally like 19 hours, 59 minutes, 59 seconds, 20 hours? Beep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's gone. He's like, Hello, I'm Dimitri. I'm Dimitri. Oh, shit, too. What? <laughs> <laughs> like, what if they had gotten this wrong? What if Naya, what if it's different depending on who's injected with this? Like, you know, if, if I catch a disease versus if you catch a disease, we're not going to die the exact same time if we get it the same time. It's going to depend on, you know, tons of different factors. Mm-hmm. Nyack could be dead in like 12 hours and he's just because when they come back to him the next morning we'll get to that scene but it's like the next morning and he's only now leaving to go find Ambrose like yeah. oh I gotta get a good sleep I mean I got 20 hours I might as well <laughs> uh, but the moment he has which I, I always love that moment where uh, they're yelling back and forth and he's like I'll get Bellerophon in your system in 20 hours uh, just stay alive <laughs> like, it's so t- 2000 action movie <laughs> so overly dramatic but I still love it um, as I what do were you he- doing <laughs> I wasn't thinking <laughs> that's terrible that's so bad <laughs> no I love it it's a cheesy moment but I love it still um, but another cool stunt like when he jumps out of the building and parachutes like that was a real stunt that was done for real uh but why he does the front flip when he dives yes. out there, I don't know. it's so showy with pike good job tom he's training for the sydney olympics <laughs> yes uh, but still it's a cool stunt and i think you know again because you're using like cgi background to kind of get lost that like tom cruise really did jump and was diving several feet you know, when he did that and did the front flip and everything. So there's some cool stuff of the scene. There's some bad stuff, but I'm happy because from this point on, like, it's all gold. The one thing that I got confused with in this scene was when all the, the guards came in. I'm like, who is Ambrose shooting at? Like, <laughs> like is this IMF? Like, I just got confused that all of a sudden the guards show up on their shift changeover. Oh, um, how great is it when Luther all of a sudden, after the gun shootout's over, he's like, Ethan, do you copy? Nye's in the building. He's like, thank you, Luther. <laughs> Ten minutes too late. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, the, I forgot the, the jumping scene. That's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, the flip. That's just... Um, anyway. Um, so we get some interesting shots. Well, not interesting shots. Some nice shots of random parts of Sydney after this. We... Get them pulling up in Darling Harbour, which, I mean, I don't know why they're in Darling Harbour. You know, it's kind of a touristy area. Um, But, hey, whatever. But then we get our first shot. And I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this, so I'm sorry to all... Actually, I'm not sorry to all our French people. You've got a stupid language. Um, La Peru, um, where this final sequence uh, is filmed. And uh, I did go here only a couple of months ago when I was in Sydney. Um, Jimmy, of course, our former uh, colleague on Survivor Oz... Uh, took us out to this location, and yeah, it's 
it looks exactly the same. <laughs> I don't really know what else. I didn't see Tom Cruise there. There was a sign though. I remember you kind of got up to the gates of, cause I think it's like a, um, oh, like an old fort basically back from the war or something like that. But, um, you can't go in there. You've got to have a certain tour. So we couldn't actually walk through the gate, but we walked over the bridge and at the gate, there's kind of like stairs down to the rocks where obviously like people go rock fishing and stuff. But there was like this sign that was, you know, rock fishing is dangerous. It has been 12 days since the last fatality here or something like that. And I'm like, that makes me feel safe. I, I should have been like, it's been 18 years since Tom Cruise blew shit up here. Um, and you know, but I mean, if, it's, if it's a pretty cool die, location. Like, you think you'd be a little, do a little more than put up a warning sign. Like, if, if you're in Winnipeg and somebody dies doing something, like, they're, they've got, like, a six-block radius quarantined off here. <laughs> in Australia, it's like, uh, a little boy just died fishing off of this dock here. It's like, all right, put up a warning sign. <laughs> it's just the relaxed nature of Australia. Ah, mate, she'll be right. Deaths happen. It's all good. There's probably a spider <laughs> under a rock down there or something. Fucking shark, mate. You'll be right. Just, you know, just read the sign. <laughs> You're right, it's a spoon. Oh, so you've played Knifey Spoony before. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck, I love that episode. Um, But we get throughout here that um, Ambrose and Troy McClure uh, essentially, um, he says he's only going to give him $30 million, but I thought it was $37 million. It was 37, yeah. Yeah, um, but essentially, because even then you think like, well, that's a lot, not a lot of money. Um, but we find out that he then wants to buy stock options because who doesn't want stock options? And he's going to release Tandy Newton out into the public. Poor old Sydney is going to get the brunt of this chlamydia. Uh, excuse me. Um, <laughs> just before the Olympics too, you know, yeah. like this isn't good enough. Um, so he's then gonna um hold hold him for ransom in terms of the fact that not hold him for ransom, but he's gonna get a lot of money off the stock because the stock's gonna go up very high because of the disease. It's the only one cure. It's chocolate Bavarian for chlamydia. So this is his grand old evil plan. Essentially, he's um Lashif in Casino Royale, uh, except Casino Royale was filmed after this. Although was the stock in the book of Casino Royale, or was that just something they added to the movie? Uh, kind of added to the movie. Okay, well, there you go. Well, I guess 9-11 hadn't happened when Ian Fleming wrote the book, so <laughs> there was that whole little side plot thing. <laughs> How would that be for predictions, Ian Fleming, <laughs> set in 2006? Well, after 9-11, what's 9-11, Mildred? That's, that's a long time away. Um, and we get uh, Ethan breaking in to the... Uh, this is a bio... What is it? Biotech? Biocorp? Biosite? Biosite? Whatever it is. Coca-Cola? Potato, potato. Um, this is their secret production factory for some reason. And this is highly monitored by guards. They're everywhere. You can see them all on the island. There's not one on the beach to see if somebody might climb up the cliffs. And how does Ethan get there? Is there a boat that drops him up? Has he swam? He's not wet. Uh, the helicopter's like parked around the corner. So is there any inkling to how the hell he actually got? to this little peninsula, little thingy-majig. Um, I mean, is it meant to be something? Am I missing something here? I don't know why he's there. Not, no, not there. I mean, I, I'll i agree with you. I don't understand how he got there, but I don't think this is supposed to be like biosets. I think the idea is that this was just 
some location that Ambrose set up to make the exchange. And I think most of those people are not biosite guards. They're like Ambrose's goons. And the thing too, which, because throughout this whole sort of standoff between him and Troy McClure, he's like got the blood to test to prove, like I've got the, you know, the disease here. So mm-hmm. again, he doesn't really need Naya at this point. Like, yes, again, he wants to set her off and infect Sydney, but as we're going to learn in just a moment, he's got no one watching over her. She's yeah. just wandering <laughs> off to a near cliff to jump off a cliff. So like, what do you need her for? You're not like, have a lackey, like some sort of henchman with her, like on a stick. Walk through Sydney, infect people. Um, and like, how does she infect people? You've got to wait 20 hours till she starts scabbing up. Like, I don't There's get, problems like, with this-, this too, because, uh, well, for one thing, it's not really explained until you get to the last scene. This is like, again, lazy writing. Uh, but the only way to destroy this virus is fire, which explains why there wasn't some outbreak after Nikorovich died in the airplane because he was infected with it as well because, well, it was burning, right? Ethan has that line later on where he says, you know, uh, how was it destroyed? He goes, by fire. It's the best way, really. The only way that this doesn't get out, because he says, uh, one thing I know for sure is that uh, if 20 hours comes up, Naya will take care of Naya. Like, what do you mean? It's like, it means she'll kill herself. She kills herself. Like, what is she, if she jumps off those rocks, her blood's still everywhere, and that virus is still everywhere. The only yeah. way she prevents this from breaking out is by diving into fire and allowing <laughs> herself to burn alive, which would have been hilarious if it was anybody which other you, than Ted. you're dude. waiting for. You're like, come on, Not jump with her. into a volcano. No, never burn something that beautiful. But, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> that used to be on my Tinder profile. <laughs> but, but yeah, like you said, like Ambrose isn't watching her. So if if you want this thing to get out, let's say she just finds a way to quietly kill herself where this doesn't spread. You're not watching, and and uh, and how is she supposed to kill herself without spreading this virus? None of it really makes sense, and of course. None of this is explained until you get to the last scene where you find out the only way to contain this thing is by fire, which they don't say <laughs> for another 20 minutes. Let, let's re-edit this movie and let, let's pretend that when he shoots Ethan, that's really Ethan. That's not Richard Roxburgh. So he's like, yes, ha, 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 I win the day. He's like, all right, just waiting for Naya to uh, infect Sydney. And then you get this phone call. I can't live anymore, Ambrose. I'm going to kill myself. No. And then he's just like, <laughs> God damn it! I knew I did something wrong. <laughs> and then the end. <laughs> Wallace was supposed to be watching her. Damn it! Oh well, we got the money. Thirty million dollars. Who wants dinner? It's on me. Um, meanwhile, Ethan's breaking into this um, lair, and of course, we have birds fly. What? What? What facility that has science everywhere just has pigeons flying around inside? This isn't the science facility, Ben. <laughs> Whatever this place is, there's science going on. It's a facility. It's a science facility, all right? Where's the science going on? It's just always... They've got computers that are analysing blood. That's science? No, they brought the laptop to analyse it. They brought their experts. It's still science, all right? I don't know much about science. It's like reading. Like, I did it in school. That's all I did. Um... Uh, Ethan basically blows shit up and there's a fight and so Richard Roxburgh goes out to get him and I do like how Ethan's hiding and there's that evil frickin' dove that stupidly just, like, ruins his cover. Uh, there is a cool scene where Ethan walks past the door and is all badass and looking through the fire and you're going, oh, come on, Tom Cruise, burn. Um, but then the, the real sort of red herring sort of moment is going to come when... 
um, this fight between Richard Roxburgh and Tom Cruise. Then we see that uh, Ethan's being captured by Richard Roxburgh, brings him in. This is, you know, how's this going to end? And it all ends by Ambrose shooting Ethan like, oh, no, he's dead. What's happened? You just killed James Bond. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then we see, going back to what I was saying about kind of the finger being cut off with the blood on the bandage, and we realise that Ethan has put a Tom Cruise mask on Richard Roxburgh and has a Richard Roxburgh mask. Now, there's got to be a question asked here. Uh, like, is Tom Cruise walking around with a, a Richard Roxburgh mask this whole time? And do you just know that that would be the one henchman? Like, what if all of a sudden henchman B came out and started fighting him? And yeah. you're like, oh, no, 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 can, like, can you go get Richard Roxburgh, please? I don't have a mask for you. <laughs> like, go please. Like, I know you're doing your job. But, like, just please, send someone better. You're a shit henchman. Um, so, you know, it's got to work out that way. And why does he have a Tom Cruise mask? Like, well, Tom Cruise had a Tom Cruise mask to put on him. Yeah, like, like he's got one to put on. Like, it, it's it's kind of weird. But, uh, I mean, it's a cool little thing. Like, I just, I forgot this ever happened, so it kind of surprised me. One thing I want to backtrack, I'm just flicking through here, this section of the movie. I do love the uh, bit where Tom Cruise is just, like, staring at the dove. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like, he's just got this look on his eyes. I have to take a screenshot of this. It's just so funny the way he's, like, <laughs> staring at this bird. Like, shut up, shut up, shut up. He's like, don't do it, little one. <laughs> uh, it's just so funny. Uh, but then this leads into um, a motorbike chase. Uh, and can I just point out that dates this movie is the ugly-looking cars that these people drive in that do not show off Australian cars very well. Uh, that they just look so old and old. Um, but, I mean, it's a pretty dramatic chase. It's well shot. I, I'm not going to say anything bad about it. Um, even though that every single one of these cars apparently has explosive devices in it whenever they crash with something. <laughs> Uh, like, what is with William Maypother's car when it blows up when it gets hit by a semi? Like, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, is this something I need to know about Australian cars that every time we hit a truck, we blow up? Like, uh, if you hit, I always love this in movies, because if you hit the gas tank, maybe, if you hit the engine, maybe, they're hitting, like, the driver's side door, which I'm yeah. sure that's where all the gases channel through. <laughs> They secretly had like a suicide bomb. Like if they if they had have gotten Ethan and then Danny Newton killed herself, the plan C was to go blow up the opera house. So yeah. that's why. Um, it all leads to uh, Ethan and Ambrose having a standoff on some rocks because we've now learnt that Danny Newton's jumping off a cliff, and so the helicopter which was parked nearby, no one saw it, um, <laughs> found her just as she's about to kill herself. Uh, and then, you know, we get a pretty brutal fight scene between these two. It kind of it reminded me a little bit of the end of Face Off when you have John Travolta and Nicolas Cage having that punch-up. Um, and uh, we think that uh, Ambrose is dead, and we think we're going to have a happy ending as we see the helicopter and Tandy Newton, and he's got the... Um, he's got the cure, he's got the chocolate Bavarian, so all things are looking good here for, uh, our heroes. But no, Ambrose isn't dead, and he wakes up, and he decides to just sit there for ten minutes having a conversation rather than just shooting him. <laughs> Why doesn't he just wake up and shoot him? Like, that's all he needs to do is, like, oh, you should have killed me, look at me, I'm evil. Um, and then we get a cool sequence, though, when he kicks the gun up and shoots him, which, I mean, it looks cool, but at the same time, it 
yeah, come on now. Um, <laughs> and where does the bullet go that Ambrose shoots? Like, that'd be funny if it just hits Tandy Newton. Luther. Uh, <laughs> Luther. <laughs> no, Billy! Not Billy! Versace! <laughs> <laughs> the constant lines. I forgot about that. Luther's lines. I'm just like, this is Versace. This is this. This is that. Uh, I, I might just go to the end of the movie here. Why not? Um, we get Tandy Newton injected. She's saved with chocolate Bavaria. No more chlamydia. Yay. Um, Tom Cruise has a bit of a chat with Anthony Hopkins about starring in a Hannibal sequel that didn't happen, sadly. And then we get slow motion, happy walk off into the distance with uh, Ethan Hunt and Tandy in um, Sydney Botanical Gardens. And off they go into the sunset and... We close off with some great music in the credits, including Limp Biscuit, which is a good song. The end. Um, so, like I said, this is all the good stuff, so I'm going to have quite a bit to talk about here. But uh, I remember seeing all the trailers for this and literally just from the trailers thinking, this is going to be the best action movie ever made. It's not the best action movie ever made because most of the movie has no action in it and has very little story. But from this point on, like I will argue, if you take any half hour action climax out of any movie i would put like the stunt work in this up against pretty much anything else out there like this is like diehard level action here and some of the best stuff john woo's ever done it's too bad he doesn't get enough credit for the good things he did in this movie partly because this isn't really typical mission impossible either like mission impossible yeah there's big action scenes in them but it's more about the story and like swerve to the audience and everything um, I think Rogue Nation, the fifth movie, probably did this best with like kind of combining action with like you know real complicated storytelling and just messing with the audience's mind. Uh, but like, if you just take this as a John Woo climax of a movie, this is incredible. And like, so many shots in here, you know, even just being able to see Tom Cruise because. Keep in mind, in 2000, who else did their own stunts? You know, we saw a lot. We're two years away from the Bourne movies being made here. Nobody else did their own stunts other than Jackie Chan at this point. And they Judy take- Dench? Judy Dench did her own Yes. <laughs> In the world she- was not enough. They were pretty realistic. She- yeah, she poured her own drink in Goldeneye. <laughs> <laughs> the world is not enough. She really did stretch her cane to grab the clock. She really did slap Sophie Marceau. Yeah, well, that's true, I guess. But, like, nobody was doing their own stunts, and they really showcased Tom Cruise doing it. Like, there's a great shot when he takes out one of the first guards uh, when he's on the top of the cliff. He does, like, a front, the same front flip he does when he, you know, uh, jumps out of the building. But it is a front flip into a leg drop, which just looks brutal. And being able to see Tom Cruise with face in there is incredible. There's so many great things here. Like, he the the one shot he has in the fight with Stamp where he does a backflip into a kick, which, again, looks preposterous, but... It doesn't look unrealistic. It's just like, what human being could do that? You know that somebody out there could. There's just so many great action shots here that we get. Um, the the whole plot, like, I, I find that this is, it's something where, I, I, good intentions, but <laughs> it doesn't play well in the movie. You know, you have this really sinister villain. You want him to do something really evil. And in the end, he's like, oh, we don't just want the $30 million. 
you're going to give us all the stocks and everything. Which, by the way, that's when the audience tunes out. Now you're talking financial stuff. Like, we want stock options. <laughs> like, this isn't Michael Douglas in Wall Street. Like, you want to hear them say, we're going to kill everybody. Like, the idea of them saying, we're going to unleash this virus. And then you throw in there say, hey, and if that happens, then we make lots of money. But instead, he spends the majority of the time talking about the finances and how this plan is going to work. And then you're going to say, we're going to get the stock options, and then we're releasing the virus, and everybody's going to die. And then you're going to sell the stocks back to us. And then the <laughs> stocks are going to go up. And then we're going to take 51% control of your company. And that's what you call in the business world a hostile takeover. Quote, quote. It's just it's way too dramatic for a lot of financial discussion here. Um, but like the idea of them saying, we're going to unleash the virus, and it's going to go up. Yeah, it makes sense. It's just I don't know why... It needs to be played this way. Um, I love, in in a bad way, I'm going to say, I love the shot when the fire explodes and you look at the flames reflecting in (laughs) Doug Ray Scott's eyeballs. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's just one step too far and cheesy, but, like, so incredible. Um, the birds, there is a reason for the birds. I think we mentioned this in Face Off. That's John Woo's trademark. Every movie he has has, like, a shot of a dove, and there's always, like, the slow-mo birds in the middle of a big action sequence. We saw it in Face Off and, like, the, the chapel scene at the end. They have it again here. It's really out of place here because even if this is – okay, let's. it's not a science facility. <laughs> this is some, you know – abandoned building that Ambrose is like, this is where we're going to make the trade. We'll bring some of our equipment. The whole time they're like, oh, pigeons crapping all over me still. <laughs> Ambrose, can we move to another but can, room? Okay, can I just actually back up with this? Because it is actually mentioned at some point in the movie that they do have another facility, and it does say biosite on the gate as they do drive through. Oh, okay. Well, it's not a science facility. I mean... <laughs> I mean, there's no, like, 100-foot-tall atrium here, you know, with generators kicking in. Like, this is clearly some abandoned facility, I would think. But eh, good, good, there we go. Props to Ben for being able to pick up on a plot point that I missed in 18 Yay! years. Yay! Probably 18 times, if not Woo, more. Team Ben! <laughs> but, um, no, I mean, the action's so good here, but this is where I start to lose a little bit. Now, I love the whole thing with stamping the finger, like you said. And the masks... When we get to part three, you're going to be pleasantly surprised because they show how the masks are made. And it's one of these moments where you're like, I think that's one of the reasons why when this movie came out, there was a lot of complaints about the overuse of masks. And then when you see it in part three, they use masks just as much in part three, but they show how it's done. And it's quite elaborate. And it's going to be one of these moments where you're going to be like, ah, now I get how he had the, the stamp mask and the Tom Cruise mask and everything else. He probably had a bag full of a mask of every single one of the henchmen that he found there. <laughs> Um, but it is funny to think that he's like, it's just, it, it must be stamped. Like you said, oh, could you send stamp out instead, please? <laughs> I'll let you live if you do. <laughs> I've only got the one mask. Uh, My plan really won't make- work. Please. <laughs> um, you turned around. <laughs> <laughs> Feel better. Feel better. <laughs> but, um, something that else doesn't make sense here. I, I love the whole reveal because it's not a Mission Impossible movie unless there's one part in it where every member of the audience is completely out of the loop and you surprise everybody. And I think that's probably what you got here when, you know, you notice the finger, the bandage on there. Uh, he duct taped his mouth. I love it. He's like, I must have broken his jaw or whatever. Like, he, he had to come up with some excuses to why. Mm, mm. And he's even trying to signal. I wish I, 
Ethan had just cut his finger that morning. Like, why is that so dramatic? Like... <laughs> That's a pretty ratty hangnail you have there, Ethan. <laughs> it must be a paranoid world in Mission Impossible universe. You're always having to pull faces off each other. Like... <laughs> the idea of Ambrose walking in, walking into the biosite facility, and here's this poor lab technician who happened to cut his finger that morning, clipping his fingernails, and he just starts ripping the skin off of his face. Get it off the powers trope, when he's, like, trying to pull the, mother, the mother's mask okay. off. Why won't this face come off? Austin, that's my mother! Um... Okay, so I said I'm not going to have anything bad to say. I mean, I love everything that happens here, but this is where it gets to be too much of Tom Cruise, the one-man show. You know that you love Galaxy Quest, too. You know that scene in Galaxy Quest? This is a subtle moment, but when they're trying to lift off on the planet after they get the, the beryllium sphere, and for no reason at all, like, there's plenty of time to just walk in the door, and Tim Allen's like, there's no time, you got to lift off without me. He's like, why do you always have to be the hero? That's exactly what Ethan does here. Like it, it's like, I can't reach you, Luther, into the helicopter. Just leave without me. And then when they're driving and he's trying to be like, all right, Ethan, this is the plan. He goes, my earpiece is failing. I have to do it alone. This is a one-man show. Bring Naya to me. <laughs> it's just then too feel much. feel better. Feel better. <laughs> I hear you got a bit of a cold. Hope you feel better, Luther. <laughs> And I'm remember, Ico, Ico, Ane! I'm sorry about your shoes. I'm sorry about your Versace. Feel better! <laughs> Over and out! Your pieces I'm failing. sorry your girlfriend dumped you! Feel better! <laughs> Gotta go in alone! Bye! <laughs> and, um... I, I don't know. I mean, there's, I'll get to the fight in a second, but, like... This motorcycle chase is incredible. Like, people who complain about this movie, just don't watch the movie. Just watch it okay. from, like, the chase scene. Just watch it from the chase scene on. Like, when it's the reveal of uh, Richard Roxborough running out, and then he rips off in his Tom Cruise face. Watch from that point on. Because, like, this car chase, motorcycle chase, everything here is incredible. What doesn't make sense is how slow of a driver Ambrose is. Because Ambrose <laughs> hops on a motorcycle, like, seconds after... Uh, Wallace and everybody else gets in the car and he's nowhere to be seen in here so everybody else is catching up to Ethan and it's like 20 minutes later that he's finally like, did he run out of gas and have to stop to, to uh, pump up at like a local shell station or something like I don't understand why it took him so long to get there um, there's a funny thing here which was probably one of the first well known bloopers maybe it was because it was like the beginning of the internet age um, I remember seeing this even on TV that they, they, they point out like movie mistakes and they pointed out that in all the, the street racing scenes here, the tires are very clearly like street tires on Tom Cruise's motorcycle and even Ambrose's. But then as soon as they go off-roading on the end, it's clearly off-roading tires. Like the tires very visibly change. I don't know if you picked up on that. Most Never people didn't. That, no. Yeah. Most people wouldn't pick up on that. But my brother-in-law, he's like, he will watch a movie just for the cars. Like die another day. 
when he went to see that with me, I'm like, hey, did you like the movie? He goes, it was okay. And I was expecting him to be like, oh, this Halle Berry and <laughs> <laughs> Invisible Cars and stuff. He was upset because of the last scene when they open up the plane and all the cars the come. Ferraris up. die. Yes. Yeah, Sorry, don't him. make me sad. It was him, and he, he he was like he wouldn't even say it at first. I'm like, wow, what was the problem with the movie? He goes, I don't know. I'm like, seriously, what is it? It's just they destroyed all those cars in the end. Like he got really upset about it. <laughs> but it was so funny because he, he started dating my sister probably just as this like after this came out like maybe just as it was coming out on blu-ray Wait, hang on. your brother started dating your sister what no my brother-in-law my brother-in-law oh i was like jesus <laughs> <laughs> what's going on in the hilding family <laughs> no brother-in-law right um, so this had just come out on dvd and i think one of the first times he came over uh you know, I was watching Mission Impossible. He goes, oh, yeah, this was a pretty good movie. He goes, but you know what always bothered me? The fact that the tires changed. And I thought he'd seen that same thing on the TV that everybody was talking about at the time. And I'm like, oh, so you saw that, that you know, little blooper mistake thing? And he goes, oh, what? I'm like, the one on TV, what TV show? Like, he just legitimately was watching this movie in theater one day. Like, the tires just change on the motorcycle. I'm out. And just walks out of the theater. Because that's the way he is. But uh, people go back and freeze frame. You can catch that here. Uh the motorcycle chase is incredible. When, when he rides the bike through the flames, um, that's fantastic. When he's dangling from the side of the motorcycle, like some of this stuff, it, it doesn't need to make sense. It just looks incredible, especially since you're actually seeing Tom Cruise do it. And they really take advantage of the, the slow-mo here in a good way because they want you to see how impressive it is that Tom Cruise is really doing these things. And this is 2000. You can tell what's real and what's not. And like these are real stunts. Uh, there's so much good stuff like the when they start playing chicken with their motorcycles and they just collide mid-air. That's fantastic. Uh, oh, going back to the masks for one second. Um, why is the Tom Cruise mask sweating? Like, I don't <laughs> know they could build sweat glands into these things. Um, the bridge. There's another thing I want to talk about. So Luther basically – Ethan says, clear the bridge for me, Luther. So, A, to make Luther, the last character in this movie who seemed intelligent, look really stupid, he shoots a car that is driving ahead of Ethan. So, <laughs> Ethan has to drive through the explosion. He said, clear the bridge for me. Ethan is behind the explosion. You've done the opposite of what he's asked. And the purpose is, of course, to give a cool action shot, but it just makes Luther look stupid if you really think about this. Also, this bazooka blows up a car on a dilapidated wooden bridge that looks like it's going to collapse if if you set foot on it. And this bridge I've is walked on that bridge. Walked on it. I'm sure that it was rickety and it was falling apart. <laughs> Not really. They improved but, it but, in 18 years. All right. So a bazooka hits it though. I guarantee this in collapse. <laughs> in Mission Impossible Three, they shoot a missile like from a rocket launcher, just like this, onto. One of the largest bridges you have ever seen, and the entire bridge collapses. We're talking about a concrete suspension bridge, <laughs> but this wooden bridge completely untouched. Um, cool shot, though. So <laughs> I'll forgive it. <laughs> Call it. This bridge. This bridge. Cool shot, though. <laughs> uh, one of the best parts, and I remember this from the teaser trailer too, because I just remember watching that teaser over and over again. Uh, the one where Tom Cruise is basically driving just on the front wheel 
as he's crossing mm. the road like that before the cars crash like again incredible stunts in here like these are jaw dropping stunts and it really works it's not just like oh well the the action's cool i mean it really does work just the way john Woo films it and everything during the fight scene like again i just want to say, you mentioned uh what was it the fight scene you compared this to the uh face off the oh, cast yeah. troy and i'm cast troy yeah the end bit the one that I really get this of is, I don't know if you ever saw a Lethal Weapon, but like the original mm. Lethal Weapon, Gary Busey and uh, Mel Gibson have, at the time, was like the most vicious hand-to-hand combat scene. Because they're really, if you think about most movies, like especially action movies, even Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone, I mean, they may have like a couple of punches and kicks and like chokeholds, but you don't get like hand-to-hand combat. And I think Mission Impossible, like this is, again, this is before Bourne, this is before Casino Royale. This was like the original, I mean, Lethal Weapon did it first, but like this was like what really started this craze of hand-to-hand combat scene. And there's some incredible uh, like fight choreography in that too. Um, it looks like, it, uh, I don't know, there's the moment where uh, Tom Cruise literally wraps his leg around Ambrose's head and just repeatedly kicks him. It just looks fantastic. Um, but the knife shots, what I want to talk about here, because... This is like the unsung hero of stunt shots in this movie. They wanted this shot where the knife would come down to his eye. And when they were getting ready to film this, like they were rigging up the device. So it's basically like a wire that y- you you will stab in a downward motion and the wire will stop like literally a centimeter from Tom Cruise's eyeball. It requires Tom Cruise to lay completely still and just trust that this rig is going to work and that it will not go any further. They were going to use like a plastic knife. So if this thing, you know, even though it's like it's plastic, it looks shiny and everything. This is what they use in movies. John Woo kept thinking to himself, I really wish we could use a real knife because I want to. The audience is going to know the difference of the reflection on a real knife. He didn't have the guts to bring up to Tom Cruise. They're getting ready to film this. Tom Cruise like they're showing him how this thing works and they stab it down and how it's going to come like a centimeter from his face. He goes, yeah, okay, well, that looks that looks good. We could probably use a real knife then. I mean, it's not actually going to touch me. And Tom Cruise just says, let's use the real knife. And John Woo was like the happiest director alive <laughs> because Tom Cruise let basically almost stab him in the eye. So like this, I, I just always think about that. I'm like, this would be a scary stunt to do because he doesn't blink. And it looks people- terrible, though. It, how does it look terrible? Well, I just the way it, it does. It, like, if that's real, that is the fakest looking real scene I've ever seen in a movie. You just because of how quickly it stops, you mean? Well, just the way you kind of see it zoomed up, like right on his eyeball, and I think there's like a glare in the eyeball or something like that. They've added kind of that shiny section to his eye, I think it is. But I don't know. To me, I didn't realize that was real. I just thought that was CGI because to me it looks fake. No, I I think it looks good. I mean, I, I can get what you're saying about the reflection of the eye, but that's partly because we're just coming off of the flames reflecting in Ambrose's eyes. <laughs> um. One part, another part here that really kind of annoys me with Ethan in this movie. This is all about a rush to get to Naya. And he knows that they're bringing her to him. He has Ambrose corner when he has the knife. And then Ambrose taunts him. And he's like, he throws down the knife. He's like, I'm going to finish this man to man. How arrogant is that? Like, <laughs> it's, it's about Mission Impossible. And he basically, he... He gets into a dick measuring contest with Ambrose here <laughs> for no reason whatsoever. Like, it just, it always bothered me that he would feel the need to do this because he's a spy. I mean, he should know you just do what you have to do to get the mission done. And now he's like, no, it's personal, Ambrose. It's just, it's, it's 
too cheesy even for a movie made in 2000. Um, I love the final shot in slow motion where he does the cartwheel kick to his head and you just see the sand flying everywhere. Like, man, John Woo is so good with this stuff. Uh, when Ambrose's head hits the rock, though, like, he's dead right there. I'm sorry. Anybody yeah. is dead that moment. Uh, and when, you know, they finally show up at the end again, Luther shows up and he's got uh, the, uh, um, or he doesn't even have the uh, Bellerophon yet. And he has, like, that kick thing with the gun and everything. I mean, none of this needed to be a team effort. It's it's all just too much of Ethan saves the day. Uh, but, I mean, I can't blame it. I mean, the fight scene's incredible and it ends well. And I think you just, at this point, you kind of just accept the cheesiness of this movie. Even if it doesn't really fit with the Mission Impossible brand that well, I, it fits as a John Woo movie. I think that's where this movie becomes more enjoyable if you just enjoy it as a John Woo movie. Um, the scene comes up right after this with Anthony Hopkins where he goes, you know, you were supposed to bring back a living sample of the Chimera virus, which again, he never said to him, we watched their entire conversation take place start to finish. And at no point earlier on, did he brief him say, you're going to bring me back this Chimera. And all of a sudden he's like, no, this was a condition of the deal, which is where you get the line. It was, how was it destroyed? Oh, by fire. It's the best way really. Um, and then the final scene, like you said, you know, the slow motion, I, I love the music. Like I kind of, mentioned i'm not a big fan of hans zimmer's score here the stuff that happens during the biosite shootout like that just sounds like straight out of the matrix it, it just doesn't suit it at all i love what he does with the mission impossible theme here um and just going along with that they credit the mission impossible band in here which i just wanted to mention uh one of the members of the mission impossible band is klaus bedell which because i'm a big movie score nerd uh, this is a protege of um, Hans Zimmer's, who three years after this, at this point, he's credited as one of the band members. He's probably the guy, you know, just uh, playing the guitar that's going, <clears throat> three years later, Hans Zimmer was calling at the last minute to do the score for uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. And he didn't have time to do it, so he kind of wrote a couple of loose themes and handed it over to Klaus Bedelt, one of the band guys here who did the music for Pirates of the Caribbean, one of the most iconic movie scores of like you know the last 20 years and he just started as a band guy here so i mean there's some good music in here but i love the final music that plays here this this kind of love theme or whatever uh as they're walking through the park uh terrible final line though when he's like let's get lost like what does that even mean <laughs> let's get lost what if i like can we just take all of their awkward flirting lines and just combine it into one scene here? Like, what are you going to do? Spank me? You turn around. Let's get lost. Like, none of these lines work in any type of romance movie or any type of, you know, uh, sexual chemistry scene ever. It's just, it's just such an awkward line. Let's and, get lost. And you thought, and Christmas comes once a year was a bad closing line. <laughs> well, that that's no Shakespeare compared no. to this. No, still worse than Let's Get Lost. But at least it makes sense. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. Well, no, I guess because Let's Get Lost, you know, they even had the thing, the, the final uh, reprise of the uh, It Wouldn't Be a Vacation If uh, You Did. So that whole Let's Get Lost thing, I guess it kind of makes sense. But Fun I'm just fact, argue. that's why J.J. Abrams uh, set Lost in Sydney, because he saw that line in that film. And that's then inspired. how he got to direct the next Mission Impossible. There yeah, we finally get to. Um, all right. Well, that's Mission Impossible 2. Um, clearly we are finishing it sort of. Well, we've got bits to talk about. I know what I'm doing here, Ben. I'm a good host. Um, critically, this film, uh, has 57% uh, 
on Rotten Tomatoes right now, uh, a score of 5.9 out of 10. The critical consensus reads, Ukraini- your cranium, Ukrainian, your cranium, that's like a country, isn't it? Ukraine, no, it's a person from the Ukraine, Ukrainian, never mind. You, your cranium <laughs> may crave more substance. Yes. But your eyes will feast on the amazing action sequences. Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, Roger Ebert, uh, said that if the first movie was entertaining as sound, fury, and movement, this one is more evolved. Really? More confident? Really? More <laughs> sure-footed in the way it marries minimal character development to seamless action. Uh, Owen Gleiberman of the end of Entertainment Weekly said the film was a throwaway pleasure, but also a triumph of souped up action. While Ella Taylor of LA Weekly said that every car chase, every plane crash, every potential drop off a cliff is a masterpiece of grace and surprise. People liked this movie. I thought this film was widely regarded as shit. Mm. Um, no, like, Jay- I think I mentioned at the beginning, like at the time this movie came out, the reviews were like, I guess you'd compare it to something like Solo that came out now. You know, people are saying, yeah, it's not the best thing in the world, but it's good for what it is. And I think audiences, for the most part, really like this in 2000. It's only sort of as you know, years went by and better Mission Impossible movies came out that it's people have kind of soured on it. Right. Well, there you go. Uh, maybe my opinions in my head are more louder than everybody. Um, Jay Hoban of the Village Voice said the film was a vaguely absurd thriller filled with elaborately super. Flif- Super big word set up <laughs> and shamelessly stale James Bond riffs. Um, so there's that. Um, should mention that this was nominated for two Razzie Awards. Um, it was nominated for Worst Remake or Sequel, in which it was up against How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Get Carter, The Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas, <laughs> but sadly lost to Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2. Uh, and it was also up against Tandy Newton was nominated oh. for Worst Supporting Actress. Uh, she was up against Renee Russo. Remember her? Uh, whatever <laughs> happened to her? Uh, in the, <laughs> that wasn't the name of the film she was in. It was The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> Renee Russo for Whatever Happened to Renee Russo. <laughs> <laughs> Coming soon. Uh, Joan Collins in The Flintstones, Viva Rock Vegas. <laughs> Can we please do that movie? Just, I just like saying the words The Flintstones. <laughs> in Viva Rock Vegas. <laughs> Patricia Arquette in Little Nicky. I actually like Little Nicky. Uh, and Kelly Preston in Battlefield Earth, which dominated the uh, Razzies that year. But I was looking at um, some of the other ones that it was uh, nominated for on IMDb. So it actually won the ASCAP Award for Top Box Office Films for Hans Zimmer. Congratulations, Hans. Hans. Uh, it won the, uh, Film Music Award for Lalo Schifrin at the BMI Film and TV Awards. It won the Bogey Award in Germany. I don't know if that's a good or a bad bogey. Uh, it got the best score for Hans Zimmer for, uh, the Broadcast Film Critics Association Awards. Um, I am proud to announce that Tom Cruise won an award for this film. He won the Italian National Syndicate of Film Journalists Awards for producing and acting the film. Congre- that's up there with his best ever awards he's ever won. Was um, he up against and- Joan Collins for the Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas? <laughs> Viva Rock Vegas. Um, he, and it won two MTV movie and movie, well, they're now movie and TV. Back then they were just the MTV movie awards. Um, he won best male performance and best action sequence for the motorcycle chase. I want to know what he won up against. Um, that would have been interesting. Um, 
before you move but on from about, that, I, I just wanted yes, to mention, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but at those MTV Movie Awards, I remember watching it that year, and they included oh, the parody feature. one with Ben Stiller. Yeah, yeah. Ben Stiller is the stuntman. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. I, they don't do them anymore, do they? they? I used to love those little yeah. intersection things they do to them. Like, my favourite one was the Jimmy Fallon one he did for Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he was doing the one with Natalie Portman, and then also the um, oh uh, no, that uh, I don't know if I've seen that one. I think that was um, Attack of Clones. Oh, was it? Oh, okay, I, I'm just thinking the one where he's like, um, "You got barbecue sauce on my robe. You have done that yourself." <laughs> <laughs> but um, and the the one with Sean William Scott and Justin Timberlake where they rip off the Matrix Revolutions, mm-hmm. uh, that was so funny. Anyway, um, one thing I want to do before I get to the box office, I think this is a fun thing we should do for these films moving on, is that on IMDb, they have plot keywords, and essentially people tag movies with what happens in them. So, you know, you have in this, for example, jumping from an airplane, scientist, secret agent... But some of the other plot keywords that are associated with Mission Impossible 2, (laughs) there are 162 of them. We have finger cut off, uh, (laughs) which, you know, fair enough. Sydney, Australia, Australia, Sydney, Uh, assassination attempt, car motorcycle chase, laboratory, femme fatale, English woman abroad, American abroad, (laughs) Scottish accent, (laughs) racetrack, Corrupt businessman. Reference to Typhoid Mary. Uh, like, oh, hang on. It gets even better. Kissing while having sex. Uh, <laughs> stepping in shit. And here's one, here's one for Jamie that she can click on this and it will link her to all the movies. Bare-chested male. Uh, <laughs> This is legitimately hilarious. We need to do this for every single movie. Famous score. Revolving door. <laughs> I, I um, mean, it's not nearly as good. Just, to, just so we could go back. It's not nearly as good for the first Mission Impossible movie. It's a lot of things like uh, Double Cross, Espionage, Luther Stickle character, which I also love that one in Mission Impossible 2. Um Stabbed in the stomach and bound and gagged. <laughs> Mission Impossible one. Uh, you know I had to find what they are for Die Another Day. <laughs> oh. Plot keywords. All right. Um, cat fo- cat fight. Um, that's fair enough. Uh, these are all standard, really. Twentieth uh, part. <laughs> Bare chested male. <laughs> Is a visible world, car in there? World domination. Uh, I don't think I've got that. Beach. Opening action scene. Uh, tough guy. <laughs> Ice palace. Suspense. <gasps> Female agent. Exploding helicopter. Black woman. Action hero. <laughs> <laughs> that is a tag. I'm not making that up. That is legitimately there. Um <laughs> Sydney, Australia? Where is... Is that because they mentioned the Olympics in it? Um, sequel mentioned during end credits. <laughs> Frozen Lake. <laughs> um, There's no invisible car, but there is invisibility. There is. I've clicked... Okay, this is for Jamie. Uh, I've clicked on most popular <laughs> bare-chested male titles. All right? <laughs> Now, this is ranked on popularity on IMDb. We have Avengers Infinity War, Black Panther, Thor Ragnarok, Vikings, <laughs> The Kissing Booth, 
Love, Simon, Red Sparrow, Pacific Rim Uprising, Annihilation, and Animal Kingdom are the top ten most popular bare-chested male uh, <laughs> You know what's titles. crazy? J- Jamie has reviewed at least two of those and talked about bare-chested males, Red we really, Sparrow, you, and You Thor need Ragnarok. to tell her that this is a thing. This is actually yeah. a thing she can <laughs> And then underneath this, so you've got most... This is it takes you to this page, and then you can click on one here. There's one here for male nudity. Uh, <laughs> so here we go. Jamie, the most popular male nudity top ten are Game of Thrones, Hereditary, Blockers, Shameless, Sense8, Red Sparrow, Outlander, Baywatch, Deadpool, and The Shape of Water. Um, there's no nudity in that, is there? You see a bum, is that maybe what they're trying to imply? Um, I, I did find Die Another Day's Invisible Car. There yeah. are five titles with Invisible Car in it. Atlanta, episode <laughs> The Club, that's a TV oh. show. Um, the 1937 Popeye short film, I Like Babies and Infinks. <laughs> uh, 2005 film, Storm, Die Another Day, and apparently there's one more popular than Die Another Day, which is Megamind. Oh. The anime movie with Will Ferrell has an invisible car. So maybe we have enough material here. We could do Invisible Car Month on the Oz Network. Yeah, <laughs> we, we really could. Um, definitely. We start um, these into months. Bare-chested male month, black woman month, and invisible car month. <laughs> black woman month. That would go down well. That would very much... <laughs> Welcome to the Oz Network. We are back with black woman month. Um, <laughs> we've got... Here, also on the tags for Jamie, male rear nudity, male nudity, as we've said, uh, male objectification. All right, we're going to see what the number one male objectification movie of all time is. Uh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> Supernatural, Black Panther, Riverdale, Thor Ragnarok, Arrow, Stranger Things, The Kissing Booth, American Horror Story, and Sensate. Um, so, yep. Anyway, we get distracted on this show, but that's a fun new little game we can play. <laughs> Guess five of the tags that will be on IMDb. <laughs> um, box office wise, uh, this is the most successful of the Mission Impossible films still to this day. Uh, domestically it made 215, 409, 215,409,889, uh, foreign 330 million, uh, so $546 million. Globally, um, which in the year 2000, domestically, this was the third highest grossing film, was beaten by Castaway and How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Uh, and internationally, though, this was the number one film of the year 2000, where it beat Gladiator and Castaway. Um, the weekend this opened, it opened with $57 million. Uh, it opened up against Shanghai Noon, um, which... Uh, opened with $15 million. Gladiator in its fourth week that weekend made, uh, $13 million, excuse me. And Road Trip in its second week made $10 million. Also opening that weekend was Kick a Juro, uh, which made a whopping $28 million. But yeah, so Mission Impossible 2, still the highest grossing Mission Impossible film, which I, I'm surprised because I thought that a lot of the future installments got better ratings, and I thought a lot more people saw them. So it's kind of surprising to see that this still is the number one grossing Mission Impossible film of all time. Yeah, I I mean, it it really showed the steam that they'd built up off that first movie, which I think we talked about last week that the the first one came out and made a fortune, but people were sort of like, yeah, it was okay, and then they really came around to it over time because when this did come out, I mean, even I don't have it in front of me, but as far as opening weekends go, 
this was probably in like the top five opening weekends of all time at $57 million like 18 years ago. Mm. And I mean, you can't be the third highest grossing movie of the year domestically. You certainly can't be the number one worldwide movie of the year unless a lot of people really enjoyed it, which is why it's interesting to see here we're reviewing a movie. This reputation has diminished over time. And next week we're going to get into one that everybody was dumping all over when it came out without even seeing the movie. And now it's considered like a borderline classic. Which, the interesting thing here, if I'm on boxofficemojo.com, they have obviously a lot of different areas, you know, we talked about this, I think, last week, you know, the TV adaptations, you know, certain things, but it's got here, genres, spy, it's the fourth highest grossing spy movie of all time. Now, without looking, mm. Colin Hilding, can you tell me the top three? Skyfall. Yes. Um, Spectre. No. And... No, Spectre's not in the top three. Spectre is eighth. Ooh, um, I'm trying to think of any of Bond, Quantum of Solace, or Casino this is Royale? domestically. I will say this doesn't say internationally. Um, no, the the only Bond film in the top uh, ten. Well, there's two in the top ten: Spectre and Skyfall. So the rest are uh, non-Bond films. I'm going to say, yeah, probably the Bourne Ultimatum. That's third. I don't think you're going to get the first one because this is one of those ones where it's like really that they're considering that a spy movie. Uh, please don't say spy with Melissa McCarthy. No. <laughs> Despicable Me 2. Oh, come on. That doesn't count. <laughs> so that's number one. Awesome Powers and Gold Member is fifth. Then Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Awesome Powers and Spy Who Shagged Me in seventh. Followed by Spectre, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, and Cars 2. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. They've, they've loosely, uh, done that slightly there. Um, so I guess we should get into our ratings, uh, unless you've got anything else to add on all this sort of stuff. Uh, you, you can go first this week. Uh, well, there's really only one place I can go because I can't in good conscience buy this movie. Um, even when it first came out, I wasn't like absolutely, I, I said this is kind of like the lost world out of the Mission Impossible movies for me. So it's going to end up right around the rented category. It's not something I could binge just because I think that the, the strong stuff this movie, like the action is so good that you can forgive everything else, but, like, the story is just not there. The chemistry of the actors is not there. There's so many missed opportunities. Uh, but this movie still deserves a place in history for not Mission Impossible 1, but being this that really made Tom Cruise this one-of-a-kind movie star, like, a kind that still to this day, I mean, people will still pay just because Tom Cruise is performing some insane stunt in a movie. Uh, so there's enough good stuff in this movie. I think that this movie's reputation it, it definitely uh i don't think it deserves to be as criticized as it is today uh but I, a lot of that i think has to do more just with comparing it to all the other mission impossible movies this is i don't think this would ever make anything but last place on anybody's mission impossible list but as far as like an overall rating it's not worth being bought it's not worth binning it's a rent it well to me it's worth binning because i'm going to uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you're right. Like, the action stuff's great. It's memorable in that aspect. But just, like, this isn't a film I want to watch again. <laughs> like, it's just it's just drawn out. The slow motion is lame. The acting's not brilliant. And, you know, I am kind of am looking forward to seeing what other Mission Impossible films came after this. Because, again, as I said at the very beginning of this episode, I just stopped watching Mission Impossible because of this film, basically. Um, and it's just... It doesn't hold up well. I don't think we really talked a lot about that. It just, to me, it just really feels dated as well. So... Yeah, I'm not a fan of this film. I mean, nothing against Tom Cruise. I agree with you in what you said about Tom Cruise uh, in terms of, you know, 
it's it's historical for kind of leaving the mark on the industry that he did with this film. But, um, you know, I mean, Limp Biscuit. if you come out of this and think that's the best thing about this film. <laughs> but I love that song. But, you know, yeah, this movie's rubbish. Bin it for me. <laughs> so if we're ranking these films in order right now, uh, what are your order right now, Colin? One and two in the same order, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's uh, everybody's order. <laughs> which... Leads us into Mission Impossible 3. They haven't really uh, changed. Actually, it's Mission Impossible 111 uh, coming up next <laughs> week. So, uh, I've got nothing to say about this. I know Philip Seymour Hoffman's in it. I like him. Um, I think isn't... Well, I was reading the cast list here. Is Aaron Paul in this movie, a.k.a. Jesse Pinkman, um, which is oh, interesting because I don't even think but- I've seen him outside of Breaking Bad. Do you know who I'm talking about? No, I know who he is, but but I mean, I wouldn't remember. But having said that, even just looking through the credits on Mission Impossible 2, I don't know if you know who Dominic Purcell is. He I've was in the, the TV show Prison Break. Um, you'd recognize him if you saw him. But he just plays one of the random henchmen in the car in the end here. And oh, then yeah. he went on I to like him. huge success in Prison Break and now the DC shows like The Flash and Legends of Tomorrow. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if they had some you know future famous person in it, but I couldn't place who he would possibly be in this movie. It says uh, that he is Rick Mead, Julia's younger brother. Uh, oh, I would never recognize him from that scene. Okay, well, apparently Jesse Pinkman's going to be in this film, but so is <laughs> Kerry Russell, a.k.a. Felicity. Yes. Uh, what? <laughs> no. What? The Americans. No. Don't mention that when you can mention the Americans. Go oh, watch the seen... Americans. In I've never seen the Americans. I've seen uh, Felicity because Amy Jo Johnson, a.k.a. the Pink Ranger, was in it. That's the only reason why I used to watch it, because I was in love with Amy Jo Johnson. But, um, yeah, I, I, again, I have nothing to say about this film. I'm looking forward to seeing Philip Seymour Hoffman because he's cool. Rest in peace. Uh, but, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing this one now that I've gotten past Mission Impossible 2. I think this is where it's going to get exciting because uh, this was the movie that... T- kind of saved and killed Tom Cruise's career at the same time. It was the bad publicity that he had coming into this that really affected the box office, even though the box office, like, it's still, like, uh, as far as opening weekends go, it's still, like, any movie would would kill to have, like, a $47 million opening weekend. But people were just so shocked that, you know, the series was starting to lose interest as far as the public's interest in it. Um, But then the people who saw the movie... We're just blown away by it. And it's one of these things where it didn't really build in the theaters. It, it really took until, uh, I would say, a couple of years after when they started. Because even the time when they were t- starting to make Mission Impossible 4, people were still uncertain. Are people going to want to watch this? J.J. Abrams' success had a lot to do with people going back and rewatching this movie. But there was such a huge deal when he signed on to this because nobody hired TV directors to make a movie, especially a TV director that never made a movie before. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, the the first version of Mission Impossible 3, which was supposed to come out a year earlier, which would have avoided a lot of the bad publicity Tom Cruise had, where David Fincher was actually signed on to direct it, you know, who probably one of the biggest directors in the world now and how different that movie would have been. Um, but I just I remember seeing this movie like the first time. And the, the one thing I'll give away, which I'll talk more about in the next episode, is I saw this movie three times in the theater and. Both times I went on repeat views, I would have gone regardless, but I actually convinced other people to go with me because they said, oh, I don't want to watch Mission Impossible. And then I'm like, you'll be shocked at how good this movie is. And I dragged two people to see it two separate times and both times like, wow, that movie was really good. Like, I didn't see that coming. So I'm I'm really anxious to see if you have the exact same reaction because most people who do watch this movie are going to be like, I didn't expect anything out of it, but that movie blew me away. 
And I definitely think we maybe should also watch in the meantime the South Park episode Trapped in the Closet because a lot of the controversy around this and kind of what happened with Tom Cruise was based around him boycotting, a you know, doing publicity for this film because the company that owned, was it Comedy Central, owned Paramount and they were, like, airing this episode, which, you know, he was trying to sue South Park on. So, like, it's interesting that we can, you know, when you get to that side of things, we talk about the box office, that South Park has a part to play in perhaps why this film didn't do as big as Mission Impossible 2, as we were just saying. So uh, there's some homework for our listeners. Also, watch Trapped in the Closet, the episode of South Park. What season and number it is, I don't know, but it's a funny episode. Uh, And maybe Tom Cruise will come out of the closet. I don't know. Uh, But like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, we're on YouTube, we're on Instagram, we're on Google Podcasts, we're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on Spotify. We're on your face right now. Get us off. I don't know how we're there. But we're everywhere. We're everywhere. Um, (laughs) So... Um, we will be back next week with Mission Impossible 3. And in the meantime, leave us some feedback. We would appreciate it. I think I only made three offensive things this episode, not my usual five. So, like, I'm doing well, all right? So, like, I'm I'm learning. I'm improving. So, yes, you're welcome. Uh, but we are looking forward, obviously, to continuing on with Mission Impossible five weeks. It's not month as we lead up into Mission Impossible Fallout coming out in a few weeks' time. My name is Ben, and considering that listening to this podcast probably made you feel sick, I hope you feel better! (laughs) And my name is Colin, and I am gagging for it. Thank you for listening to the Oz Network. Don't forget to subscribe to get new episodes delivered to your speakers every week. For more information, hit us up at theoznetwork.net.